0: Welcome to the podcast of Outpost Church in McLaren Vale. This week, we are hosting a discipleship training week, and our focus is the spiritual disciplines. And this is our second year of running the discipleship training week, and we are pumped. It's our first year of offering the content from the DTW. Uh, On our podcast, and we hope that it's encouraging for you. We hope that it helps to equip you uh, to live a life of intimacy with Jesus Christ. God has given us the Spirit because the Bible's a spiritual book, God has given us the Saints because the Bible's a community book. Other people we learn from, and God has given us a brain, He's given us reason, He's given us logic, He's given us intelligence. He's given us a science, a way to test and repeat, test and repeat, to know what truth is. And we call that the science of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy term for basically interpretation. And we apply hermeneutics to every piece of literature we read, all the time, even if it's a movie, which, it, dare I say, is literature. When you watch Disney's Lion King cartoons, you understand them differently than a National Geographic documentary on Zimbabwe's big cat population. Okay, When you watch this, you know it's there to ent- educate you about what big cats are like. When you watch this, you know the whole purpose of it is to entertain you. You don't really think that lions sing and dance with meerkats. That's not real, it's poetic language, it's designed to be fictional. There's a difference between fiction and non-fiction literature, we know that. So we apply hermeneutics, the science of hermeneutics to everything. There is in Nehemiah chapter 8, a three-step process to hermeneutics, which I like to frame around three questions, because if there's anything you're going to take from these four sessions, it's that asking questions of the Bible is really important, God's not afraid of questions. The first question we ask is, what does it say? The first thing we need to do is work out what does it say. So Nehemiah read out of the book, no, not not Nehemiah, Ezra, read out of the book of the law, translating it as he went. The next question we need to ask is what does it mean? There's a difference between what does it say and what does it mean and all married couples say, yes, we know that. Um, The next question, the third question is what does it matter? Who cares? Who cares if that's what the Bible says? And who cares if that's what the Bible means? What does it mean? does it mean? How does it matter to us today? The three R's, basically to answer this question, you've got to read it. You've got to reflect. Or you reflect so the Spirit can speak. You research so the saints can speak to you. What other people do? Think about this, you research. Or you reason. You just use your logic, okay? And you apply Logic. You read it, you reflect on it, and then you respond to it. And either of those steps you can get wrong. Ideally, we get those three steps right, and that's how we handle the Word of God. If you want another alliteration, what does it say deals with the information? Well, here's the information in the Bible. What does it mean deals with interpretation? Um, I understand the meaning. And what does it matter deals with implications. What's the implication for that for me today? Okay. Um, So what does it matter? Then what did we do? Oh, and then we looked at step one. See, Lisa, I should have just got you to do this. You would have been way faster. The first step is what does it say? We've got to read the Bible. And so we looked at which translations of the Bible we should read. And I say translations plural because I think every serious Bible student should have more than one Bible. I won't go through that again today. And then we looked at a few tips to how to read the Bible and I used an acronym there, A-E-I-O-N-U. And the main thing really, the biggest one of those I wanted to spend time on yesterday, was to read the Bible with intention, to know I'm deliberately reading it and this is how. I'm either reading it devotionally, topically or chronologically or sequentially. We need to read the Bible well. The second step is to reflect Research uh, and uh, reason our way to discovering the aim of exegesis. Exegesis is all about saying what does it mean? And the aim of exegesis is to discover the author's intended meaning. We the meaning is what the author meant. Like the red line on your traffic app, it doesn't matter if red means something to you because you're a romantic, it's what does the author mean? He means congested traffic, that's what he means, that's what matters. Or she means, that's what matters. It's the aim of exegesis. That is what we are after. In the aim of exegesis, thanks son. I've asked you to consider four things to work out the author's meaning and I call them the ABCs. exegesis Um, a stands for author and audience audience. if you want to know what a biblical text means you need to do what um, Laurel and Hardy Laurel and Hardy Tony no Abbott and Costello Tony Abbott and Costello (laughs) I can't help it Um, Abbott Costello told us and you've got to ask who's on first Okay. Anyone who's younger than fifty in the room, (laughs) go home and Google who's on and YouTube who's on first, Abbott Costello. It's black and white, but it's it's hilarious. Uh, or is it just us showing our age? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Author and audience, who's on first? You've got to know who's speaking and who they're talking to. And there are some pretty obvious examples of who's speaking, like Job. You know, you got to, it's Job's friend speaking, not God necessarily. And then toward the end of yesterday, I shared a little mm, maybe about who's speaking in Corinthians, about a unusual possible explanation of Corinthians when Paul says women can't speak. And I have sent a scholarly. Uh, analysis of that view through to chris uh, shane and christy if you want to read that from a, um, an academic point of view okay that unpacks it better than chad did author and audience the b in um, the abcs of exegesis all about discovering meaning what does it mean is the big picture background Ugh, or backdrop drop that is terrible muriel Okay. <laughs> Big picture backdrop. In a few years ago, 2012, there was a. This image was plastered around the world. Shane, do we have a photo of a guy whose name I can't remember now? Mo I think Farrah. Mo Farah. Thank you, Mo Farah, and he. This is the. Um, London 2012 Olympics, and he won two gold, gold in two races 800 and 8, 810,000 meters. I can't remember, you can Google it. Um, he won gold in both those instances, and he became famous because of this shot. I mean, it's just beautiful, you know. And you look at that picture, and you can tell what's going on. I mean, you know, this is highly likely an Olympic event or certainly an international event because you've got Kenyans and Ethiopians in the background you can probably um, (laughs) you can probably work out that it's a long distance run because if you contextualize you know who the best long distance runners are in the world okay they come from these countries Great Britain well there's remarkable okay but it's probably a longer distance run and you can tell in the background that there's what a whole stack of people so it's definitely not the 20 Pre-COVID, definitely pre-COVID, no masks there. So it's pretty easy to work out, what does this photo mean? However, if one of the things that happened with this photo and why it became so popular is because a fad developed online and they, people took his picture, because they love this expression on his face, and superimposed it onto different backgrounds. And so you have stuff like this. Okay, and like this. Next, running from a car, for those listening, he's running from a car crash and now running from the bulls, okay, (laughs) next one, running from T-Rex, okay, there you go. So if, okay, finally, (laughs) there you go. So if we were to look at this picture and say, why is that man running? What does that expression of exhilaration mean? Well, you'd look at that and you'd go, well, it means he's absolutely petrified of Teletubbies. That's what it means. Because that, yeah, I agree with that. That picture imposed on that background helps you to interpret the meaning. But the only true answer to the question, why is this man so exhilarated? Why does this man have this expression on his face? You can really only discover that meaning when you see the foreground information on the backdrop. Okay, and this is what a lot of people mistakes we make when we read a Bible passage. Here's the passage I'm reading: the story, the incident, the account. But if I don't consider that foreground information and take a step back and see where it fits on the big picture backdrop, okay, I will never really understand what it truly means. Okay, so in this uh, ABCs of exegesis, in the second step, B. What I want to encourage you to do when you read the Bible and you read a passage and you go, what does that mean? I know what it says. What does it mean? What does it mean? I need to consider where what it says fits in the big picture backdrop. And you and I know people, and this is how you start a cult, for those of you interested, when you take foreground information and you dismiss the whole contextual background of it and you focus in on that one thing only. Okay, One of the best things you can do as a Bible student is develop a big picture background. And so I want to help you in this part of the session to develop a bird's eye view of the Bible, to see it as one big story, Okay, because that's what the Bible is. It is God's Word presented to us in narrative form of one story. The Bible is not two books. It is not 66 books. Primarily, it is one book. And here's what it looks like on a shelf. Biblia, the word means a collection of scrolls. It is a collection. The Bible is basically a library. And it's a library of 66 books by 40 authors written over 1,500 years in different languages, different continents, many genres, different purposes, many audiences. It is a book of incredible variety. But it is one book. And it ultimately tells one story. And we call that the meta-narrative. The meta means big, narrative means story. Somehow, this library tells one story from beginning to end. And if you're trying to work out the meaning of your character that you're looking at, your passage, your particular book, you will never really understand its meaning unless you understand where it fits in the Bible's big picture. So when I'm sitting down with my five-year-old daughter and we start doing a puzzle, you scatter those puzzle pieces on the table and every individual piece is valuable and every individual piece is a work of the artist. But you do not appreciate those pictures properly until you see the whole thing put together. And in order to put the whole thing together, you have two tools at your disposal. The first is you've got the, the... top of the box okay what the artist has told you this is where I'm going with this here's the big picture mate get this picture in your head and then the next thing you do is you establish the border and boundaries okay you understand that there's a limitation to this story the bible story does have limitations Uh, basically we're reading a story that spans about 1500 years okay now the implications are eternal but as a history book It spans about 1,500 years. That's a long time for a history book. But geographically, it's actually fairly limited, this story. Uh, Most of the story, for example, we don't see people in Australia in the Bible story. You don't read about the Mayan conquests of South America. You're not going to find information about the great Chinese dynasties of mainland China or the Nok civilization in sub-Saharan Africa. They're not mentioned. And the reason they're not mentioned in the Bible story is because geographically the Bible's story is centred around the, na- the nation or the country of Israel. That is the primary focus and the nations around it that relate to Israel over that 1,500 years are included. And that's because the Bible is not so much a book of human history as it is a covenant history. It describes primarily God's relationship with his covenant people. Now, other nations feature... The reason you don't read about Aboriginal Australians in the Bible is because they had no relationship with God's covenant people over this period of history. Now, does that mean the Bible's irrelevant to Australians? No. It just means as a history book, there is a limitation to the boundaries of the history of the narrative that it expresses. Jesus is the eternal saviour for all mankind. What the message of the Bible matters... It matters to everyone, but as you read it, it has distinct boundaries in the geography of where it's placed. And what I want to help you do just now, now that we've established a little bit of a border, is explain something of this one story of the Bible. Is that okay? Have I, have I just launched, am I okay? I need to have my coffee. Um and help you understand where the books of the Bible fit. I'm going to do some walking. I'm going to give you a sheet today because I I wasn't a very good teacher and didn't bring anything for you yesterday, but I've uh, been a little bit more prepared today. Here's the story of the Bible in 15 minutes. 1,500 years in 15 minutes. Easy. The first part of our Bible is what I like to call the age... Of the ancients now i'm going to give you a print out of this so i don't want to give it to you yet because you'll be distracted the age of the ancients and this describes the period of genesis 1 to 11. here is the part of our bible where we hear the story of individual people that walked with god adam and eve enoch um, noah okay and ultimately abram these are people that met and encountered god at this stage of our bible God doesn't seem to have a community of people that walk with him. There's no explicit indication that Noah's sons, for example, carried on the faith that he had. There's no explicit example of Enoch's sons walking with him, but it tells a tale tale of individuals. These are ancient people that walked with God in that time, from Adam to Abram. As far as having a community of people, very little, it's implied maybe, But very little is explicitly said about a community of people that walk with God. These are ancient men and women that walk with him. The next phase of our Bible tells the story of the patriarchs. And here in Genesis 12 to 50, God starts developing a covenant family. God makes a covenant with Abram and says, Listen, Abram, it's not just you that I'm going to bless. It's you and your sons after you. Okay? You and your sons after you. God now has a covenant family. And so in this part of the Bible, it tells the story of one man that becomes one family. God is now not just dealing with individual people that walk with him, but with a family that he blesses, even when they behave like absolute ratbags. God comes to Abram and says, I'll bless you. And even when Abraham lies, when his sons cheat and steal and pillage and plunder, he still blesses them. Because they're part of a covenant family that he promised to bless. It's completely unfair, but in regards to rewarding people according to their behaviour, but that's not what God was doing. He was rewarding these people according to their pedigree, their family background. Okay, As long as they were Abram's kids, they were God's kids, and I'm going to bless you no matter how you behave. Okay, That's not the point of those stories. The point is, is to show that God was blessing people because they were in covenant family with him. Then we enter into the next phase of the covenant journey God's covenant family journey where God's family one family becomes one nation okay when God pulled his people out of Egypt they became a nation at Mount Sinai they became a uh, had their own political system they had their own calendar they had their own rituals their own way of worship they had an own promised land They had their own system of operating now as a society. In this era, they were just a big family. A couple of families, they were shepherds, mums and dads ruled the house and they passed on the family customs. Now they become a recognised nation. God pulls them out of Egypt and says, you are my people and I am your God. And as a nation now, maybe two million people, who knows, as a nation now, they need a new governing structure. And God gives them what are known as judges. Now, Moses, strictly speaking, is actually the first one. He rules this whole nation. He's the one leader over this one nation of people. Over time, as this nation then go into the promised land, thanks to Joshua, and disperse, God gives them judges as they cry out for help. You know this? God gives them, they are prophets, they are military leaders, and God helps the nation of Israel prosper. They are his covenant nation. So one people, one man became a family, that family then became a nation in this era, the age of the judges. Then what happens is at the end of that era, there's the, probably the, one, of the, one of their top judges at the time, the last one, is a guy called Samuel. And what Samuel does is something really weird and we don't know why he does it. He thinks, look, I'm about to die and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to appoint my sons to rule when I'm dead. They can be judges in my place. They can succeed me. Now, no judge had ever done this before. In fact, Gideon, who was judge, everyone loved Gideon, he's, he's amazing, they came to Gideon and they said, listen, you're so good, we think your son should rule when you're dead. Give us a succession plan so we can always have your bloodline leading us. And Gideon said, no way. Unless God calls someone, that's not going to happen. That's not, there's no way my sons are going to lead in my place. Okay? Gideon refuses that. But Samuel thinks it's a good idea. He thinks, you know what? I'm going to appoint my sons to really make sure there's a, a judge on the throne, so to speak. And his sons, no one likes them. Okay, they're, they're Whatever. Let's not use derogatory terms. Nobody likes them. But the people think this is actually a good idea. What we should do is let's set up a system where if when we've got a good leader, we'll set up a system so that that leader's son will always become the next ruler. And so they ask for a monarchy. Now, God knew this was going to happen because way over here, Moses said, one day you're going to ask for a monarchy and just make sure that this doesn't happen and this doesn't happen. But that's what the people do. And I figured this out one day because I was reading the book of Samuel when God's people asked for a king and I wondered why God got so ticked off with it. Because there's no real difference between a king and a judge. When they ask for a king, they say we want a king to fight our battles and lead us. Well, guess what? That's what all the judges did. They fought their battles and they led them. So what's the difference between asking for a judge and asking for a king? And the difference is the system of government. A king or a monarchy means that not only am I appointed, but my son will automatically be appointed. Over here, the people had to cry out for God and trust him to give them what they needed when they needed it. So in this era, they were trusting the spirit of God to meet their need. In this era, they weren't trusting the spirit to to meet their need, they were trusting a system. Let Let the... Institution look after us. We trust the institution rather than all trusting the organic voice of God. And so that's the difference. Let's give us a system. So now from here, God's people become a kingdom. Here's the story. God's dealing with individual people. One man becomes a family, a covenant family. That covenant family become a nation with their own governing system, worship system, calendar, and public holidays. That nation... (laughs) become a kingdom and generally for the first 120 years um, what's his name Saul David and Solomon this era here becomes the golden years of Israel's history they'll look back at the united kingdom years this is where the psalms are written proverbs are written ecclesiastes are written song of songs are written you read about this in the books of Samuel and, and, and kings and first chronicles when the kingdom is united they take Jerusalem capital city Okay, they basically inherited the promised land that God promised way back here to, uh, um, what's his name? Abraham and the family. They're in the promised land. They have a temple. God's glory is with them. Everything's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. They're prospering. They're peaceful. They're doing well. And then at the end of Solomon's life, he screws up pretty badly because he disobeys what Moses said way over here. And God says, listen, mate, when you die... I'm going to split this kingdom into two. One kingdom will now become a divided kingdom. And he uses a prophet, a guy called Ahijah, to do this, who takes a garment and rips it up into pieces and says, you can have one, but the north, the ten northern tribes are going to secede. Like, you know, everyone thinks Texas should do in America, or what WA should do here in Australia. They should just secede, right? Cut away. Well, that's what happens. Solomon dies, and the one kingdom is now split into two. So what happens? What happens? One man becomes a family led by fathers. A family becomes a nation led by judges. That nation becomes a kingdom led by a king. That kingdom now becomes a divided kingdom, split north and south. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And the Levites, who like refugees, come flooding down, down to the south to be with the temple. Because Israel, remember, is always 13 tribes, not 12. Bible quiz night, how many tribes in Israel? 13. Okay, there's always been 13. Only 12 had allocation of land and only 12 fought in the army because the Levites had a priestly role. But there's always been 13. So 10 are in the north, three are down in the south. And this is where the Bible becomes really confusing. This is where the prophets kick in. There's always been prophets speaking through here. Okay, the first national prophet of Israel and the great prophet of all prophets is Moses. To understand the prophets when they speak over there, you really need to understand Moses. Because this is what happens: Moses, as a prophet, writes down the law, and then the prophets come in this period, and they like prosecuting attorneys, they prosecute the law. Okay, Moses is the lawgiver. The prophets are prosecutors. They open up Moses' book and they say, Israel, this is what you've done wrong, this is why you're guilty. This is what you've done wrong, this is why you're guilty. And so when you read the prophets, they echo a lot of Moses' language, which is why we really need to be a people that read Moses. Okay. And Moses, at the end of his life, by the way, at the end of Deuteronomy, he prophesies about a lot of this stuff happening, And it's so depressing (laughs) when you read the end of Deuteronomy. It's like his final hurrah. He says to them as he dies, because he's a prophet, he says, listen, after I die, you're going to rebel and God's going to judge you and curse you and destroy you and disperse you. You've got a hell of a future coming up because you're a bunch of rebels. Good on you, Moses. All right, so that's Moses. Got a bit cranky in his old age. But that's what the prophets do. They say, guess what? Moses was right. You're a bunch of rebels. God's going to get you. God's going to curse you. God's going to judge you. God's going to kill you. That's why we struggle to read the prophets because they're so doom and gloom and depressing. But this, no, no, no. Back, age of the divided kingdoms. This is where most of the prophets come in. The minor prophets, all of the major prophets, the 16 prophetic books, and of those 16, 13 off the top of my head are all in this period. And you will never understand the prophets properly. If you don't understand, as is described in Kings and Second Chronicles, that the kingdom is divided. Sometimes the prophets speak to the north. Now, because the north has the majority tribes, they become known as the kingdom of Israel. Over here, the whole thing was the kingdom of Israel. Over here, Israel was a nation. Over here, Israel was a family. Joseph, an amazing technicolor dream coat, the family of Israel. Over here, well, there was no Israel wasn't born there. So Israel was a man, was a family, was a kingdom, but now in the divided kingdom, it's the northern people that take the name Kingdom of Israel. They're the majority, so they retain the name. The guys down south are known as the Kingdom of Judah. So this is where you read kings. And it's like, what's going on? When this guy was king of Israel, this guy was king of Judah. When this guy died in Judah, this guy became king in Israel. When this guy was king in Israel, this guy became king in Judah. Okay, It's why when you read the prophets, some of them prophesied to Israel, Israel, Israel. Some of them prophesied to Judah. Some of them, like Isaiah, prophesied to both. If you do not understand the age of the divided kingdom, you'll have no idea what's going on in the prophets. Okay, One nation under Moses, became one kingdom, thanks to David and Solomon, became now a divided kingdom. And the, basically the way it works is this, in the north, every king that they have sucks, they're wicked and one is more wicked than the next, is more wicked than the next. Over a hundred and something years, they have 19 kings and more, more kings than we have prime ministers, okay. And basically, there's political coup after political coup. They're stabbing one another in the back. Some guys are only in the job for three months because they're killed shortly, soon after, okay? So when the prophets are talking to the north, they're talking to Israel. Sometimes they call them Ephraim because the first king was from the tribe of Ephraim. So thanks for making the Bible even more confusing. Sometimes they call them Ephraim. Sometimes they call them Israel. After 19 kings... Their rebellion is so bad, God says, I'm done with you. (laughs) You're out. Because that's what I said to Moses. If you keep keep on disobeying me, this is the covenant that I made with you at Sinai, remember? If you keep on disobeying me, I'll get you. And so he does. And so over here in the northern kingdom, God says, I'm going to destroy you. And I'm not going to do it by a volcano erupting or a band of angels coming in or whatever. I'm going to use the army of Assyria. And this is known as the day of the Lord. Okay? It's where a military force comes in, does a physical destruction, but God's behind it. And so that's why some of these prophets, when they prophesy to the north, off the top of my head, I'm going to say Micah and Amos and definitely Hosea. They prophesy up to these guys and they say, you're done, God's done with you. Okay? And God basically divorces them. And that's what he says in Jeremiah, I wrote you a certificate of divorce like an unfaithful bride and I sent you away. We are no longer married. The covenant that I made with you at Mount Sinai, I am no longer your covenant husband. And then the prophets speak to the south and they say, you better darn well learn your lessons from the crazy cousins up north, you know, because you've got the same agreement. And here in Jerusalem, this is where they sometimes have a good king but most of the time have a bad king sometimes have a good king sometimes have a bad king and so god's blessing goes up and down and up and down according to how well they behave that's the deal that they're in the difference in the south is that it's always one of david's family because god made a promise during the united kingdom to say dave one of your boys will always be on the kingdom no no matter how on the throne no matter how bad things get so down here in judah it's always david's family in charge but eventually The same thing happens. God says, I'm done with you. And I'm going to bring in Babylon for another day of the Lord. is going to happen and the city's going to be destroyed. Your temple's going to be destroyed. Daniel misses that. He's taken away by Nebuchadnezzar first. Ezekiel, taken away by Nebuchadnezzar in a second captivity. But Jeremiah is there the whole time, weeping as it happens. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how could you not learn from our crazy cousins up south? What's the matter with us? And Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city. But thankfully, no matter how much doom and gloom are in the prophets, there's always hints of hope. Hints, hints of hope, hints of hope. And those hope are these prophetic promises that say, one day I'm going to remarry you. One day, like Hosea, I'm going to send my wife away, but I'm going to remarry you. Oh, it's a prophetic picture. Mm, Okay, there's hints of hope there. Jeremiah, I'm going to remarry, I'm going to make a new covenant. Jeremiah 33, and it's not going to be like the covenant I made with you at Mount Sinai because you were unfaithful to that and so I cursed you. No, it's going to be different to that deal. In this deal, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and a new covenant with the house of Judah. I'm going to bring them together again as one kingdom under one king. And that king's name will be David. Quote, David, and he will be a good shepherd to my people. See what I'm, where I'm going? Do you think David's coming back from the dead? No, this is prophetic language. I'm going to raise up a David, okay, hint, hint, and he's going to reunite the tribes, and guess what? You are going to raise from death. There's going to be a resurrection because if he, uh, Ezekiel 37, he sees an army of dry bones, and he says the whole house of israel say we're dead we're dead we're out of the promised land god breathes on them you come back to life you're going to be raised to life and experience my life again all these promises come through and then after as all these promises are coming through god's people from down south who are now taken into babylon some of them those who are left they now get sent back to the promised land yes finally everything the prophet said is going to happen maybe this is where we enter the next phase. This is what I would call the age of the second temple. So this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, The political powers that be send some of God's people back. Those people are now called Jews. In this part of our Bible, you will never hear the word Jew. Okay, there's No such thing as Jews over here. Because Jew means a man of Judah. Okay, Abraham wasn't a Jew, he was a Hebrew. Men of Judah are from the kingdom of, not Israel, but the kingdom of Judah, okay? They become Judahites. So it's only in this part of our Bible that the name Jew now comes up. That's where it was invented, in this part of history. So it's the men of Judah. Well, where are those men of Judah? They're in Babylon. They now come back to their promised land. And so Ezra and Nehemiah talks about the Jews coming back, the Jews coming back, the Jews coming back, okay? Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild the temple, and Malachi and Zechariah and Haggai are there encouraging them, saying, go boys, go boys, go boys, and girls. Go boys and girls, keep building this thing. They build it, they build the temple, and guess what happens when they consecrate the temple? They cry, because nothing happens. When Moses built a sanctuary, and they they built the tent, According to what he saw on the mountain, God's glory came like a fire, a cloud, covered it. The priest couldn't even go in to minister. It was so strong. They just fell on their face. God said, I'm in the house. When Solomon built the temple over here, same thing happened. Built the temple. Glory came. The most holy place was filled. The priest couldn't even enter. They fell flat in their face. Holy fire came from heaven. Bam! Consumed the sacrifice. It's like God saying, I'm there. When this temple was built, nothing happened. It's a bit of a letdown, actually. Because because you've got all these promises from the prophets saying, I'm going to do this incredible restoration. And as you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're a bit, oh, that's a bit of a downer. God's not in the house. The same endorsement he gave on those other instances is not on the second temple. It seems that Ezekiel's word when he said, the glory has departed... God had still not endorsed this temple. These prophetic promises were awaiting another stage and phase of history. And so it's here in the age of the second temple that our Bible narrative finishes at the end of Nehemiah. And there's a 400 year gap. Some people call them the silent years. It wasn't silent. There's was a whole lot of stuff happened. Okay, uh, A whole lot of stuff happened. It's just that no Bible was written at that time but what what happened in this time was political upheaval and political upheaval so by the time Jesus is born you have a you have a religious system with no presence no substance and what happens when you have structure with no substance you have religion that adds and adds and adds to what God has said and adds to what God has said and so by the time Jesus gets on the scene you've got these things called Pharisees and Sadducees and synagogues and 600 laws isn't enough we've got now 3,926 laws and we, we strain out every gnat to swallow a camel because when you don't have presence you have religion being stricter and stricter and stricter and stricter you add to what God has said and so in this period second temple Judaism develops until we get to the scene when Jesus comes along the scene and we have we're introduced in matthew chapter 1 to promises of this happened in order to fulfill in order to fulfill in order to fulfill you remember reading matthew you see that all the time in order to fulfill in order to fulfill and the writers of the new testament are saying there have been promises all the way through our history our history, our covenant history, all the way back to Abraham, when God, was <laughs> when God had promised a relationship with Adam and Eve that was lost, when God had promised a family a blessing to reach the nations of the earth, when God promised a nation through Moses to, to extend and, and to possess a promised land, when God promised all these things through the prophets in the divided era, they're now saying we are in an age where these promises are being fulfilled and it's all because of Jesus. Okay, it's all because of Jesus. And so Jesus comes in, fulfilling, fulfilling, fulfilling. You read the book of Acts and the preaching is constantly, we are only preaching what our our prophets have said happened. The New Testament doesn't really contain anything new. Kind of. It's a fulfillment and an understanding of all what God has already said would happen. So that's what Paul and all these guys are saying. We're not preaching anything new, really. We're preaching now in Jesus. It all makes sense what God had said would happen. Okay, So we thought that there was going to be a physical David sitting on a physical throne or a physical Elijah coming down from heaven. or No, no, no. John the Baptist actually fulfilled that. Okay, Jesus is actually the king on the throne that fulfills that. Okay, The two kingdoms coming together. We have Jew and Gentile being brought together, the mystery, no one would have ever seen that happening, this is the mystery of the gospel, that people out of covenant with God and people, Jewish people, in covenant, in the old covenant with God and now brought together in one covenant community, nobody ever saw that happening, it's a mystery Paul says that was hidden in all these scriptures, we are only realizing it now that Jesus has come and the Holy Spirit's teaching us and giving us revelation, we look back and we go, duh, that's what God meant when he said he meant fulfilled in Christ it was just hidden as a mystery for long ages past and now we are realizing it in fulfillment and so these books or sorry these books um, explain an era or an age of time where God's prophetic promises were being fulfilled Uh, where are we today well we are in an era now and this is where I want to present it like this and not theologically because a lot of people, when they break up the Bible and say, look, here's some different phases in the Scripture, they like to do it in theological ways. This is the era of the pronounced kingdom, the shadow kingdom, the blah, 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 and who's he, what's it, or dispensational theology, okay, Um, which breaks up into different times but has a strong theological bent to it, the age of innocence, the age of whatever, I can't remember, blah, 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 blah. I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to say, you can work out the theology on your own. I'm trying to say, this is how God's community developed. God was dealing with a man. Then he was dealing with a family. Then he was dealing with a nation. Then he was dealing with a kingdom. Then he was dealing with a divided kingdom. There's no way you understand half of the New Testament if you don't get the divided kingdom thing. Then he was dealing with a restored community of sorts. And now he's de- de- dealing with a community that is the fulfillment or is fulfilling what God has promised through all that time. Okay? But we only understand that in light of the finished work of Jesus and the revelation of the apostles. Because it's a mystery that was kept hidden in that time. If the mystery, if this was super obvious how God was going to do this, then Satan would have stopped it. You Remember reading Paul say something like that? If the powers would have, would have uh, uh, you can look it up, somewhere he says, uh, and C.S. Lewis picks this up, I think, in Narnia, where he says, if this was super obvious, the powers that be, he even deceived it, he even uh, kept it hidden from the powers that be. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory had they have known. Something like that. There's a phrase like that. You can Google it. So somewhere in here, God was keeping things concealed so that in the New Testament era, things would come to light. Okay, So... As you read the Bible, it's set out for you like this. The Bible is not set out, as I said yesterday, in a chronological fashion, where you just read the story as it goes. The Bible is set out according to genre. It starts with the history books on the top shelf. Then in the middle of the Old Testament, you've got the poetic books. Then at the end of the Old Testament, you've got all the prophets. Even though some of those prophets spoke here, some of them spoke here, some of them spoke here. They're all in the, in the back part of the Bible. And then, of course, you have the, the New Testament. So my purpose is not to explain how the Bible set out for us because the Holy Spirit didn't inspire that layout. Humans just thought it was wise, okay? I'm not saying that's Spirit-inspired. My job in this last, what I said was 15 minutes, let's just go with that, <laughs> was to explain that when you pick out the book of your Bible that you are reading, don't just start reading, take a step back. Go, hang on. I'm about to read Daniel. That's a lot of fun. Let's read Daniel. Easy to understand. <laughs> no controversy there. Where does Daniel fit? Well, I'm before I read, because I want to know not only what he says, I want to know what it means. And in order to know what Daniel means, I need to appreciate the big picture background. I'm not reading in this part of history. This has happened. Now, this has happened. Oh, that's right. Daniel went through this. Daniel went through this. Ah, Daniel comes in the divided kingdom, kingdom era where he was taken out of Judah. Oops. Where he was taken out of Judah and he is watching what's happening down here in Judah as it's being destroyed. Okay, and his prophet. So now I understand that. It'll help me understand the book of, the book of Daniel as I read. Step back and have a look at the big picture backdrop. There are many things that contribute to the backdrop of the Bible. One of them is chronology. But there's other stuff as well. Culture forms part of the backdrop. Certain things you read in the Bible, you don't understand until you understand the Jewish culture or the Mesopotamian culture or the Greek uh, culture that forms the backdrop to that text. So culture is a part of the big backdrop. Not even going to go there today. Chronology. Chronology is part of the big backdrop. Covenant is part of the big backdrop. Those of you on Seed's Young Adults Camp a few years ago, covenant, understanding covenant is so important and it's part of the subtle backdrop. When Jesus says over here, he says, if you do not forgive, God will not forgive you. Okay, well Jesus said that, so it's true, it's in red. And then Paul over here says, God has forgiven you all your sins in Christ. Now, both of those statements are in the New Testament. But can they both be true? Can Jesus say, Your forgiveness is conditional on you first forgiving others? If you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. That's what Jesus said. Can't argue with it. But then Paul says, All your sins have been forgiven. How can they both be true? Well, author and audience, big picture background. Jesus, when he said, unless you forgive, God will not forgive you. He was speaking to Jewish people. He was speaking to people in the old covenant who are under a system, thanks to Moses, where Moses said, if you disobey, God will curse you. He'll bless you only when you obey. So God's blessing on you is dependent upon what you do first. That's who Jesus was speaking to. Then after Jesus dies, he says these words on the cross. Father, forgive them before they even know what they're doing is wrong. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so Paul on this side of the cross says, all your sins have been forgiven. Paul is writing to Christians who are in a covenant, who have people who have received forgiveness of sins as a free gift of God's grace. You are forgiven. So when you read Paul's epistles at least three or four times, it's always forgiveness is in the past tense. He has forgiven you. He has forgiven us. He has forgiven us. On this side of the cross, Jesus speaks to an audience that are in the old covenant. Jesus didn't speak to Christians, Christians didn't exist. When Jesus was walked the earth. You can only be a Christian after the death of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke to people in a covenant of law. Paul spoke to people in a covenant of grace post the cross. Chad, are you saying that what Jesus said is not relevant? Oh come on, come on, come on. No, I'd never say that. The whole damn Bible's relevant. I wouldn't have done all this if I didn't believe that everything's relevant. But not everything, but there are different audiences in the Bible. Oops, different audiences in the Bible. And some of those audiences are under different covenantal agreements. They're under different covenants. All the Bible's relevant. All the Bible's significant. But it's not all written to Christian people. A whole bunch of it is written to people under the Old Covenant. And so I say again, that's why none of us have sacrificed a pigeon or a dove or a lamb this morning. Because you know these instructions were not given to you. They're there for you to learn. This is what was written to Christians. And so every now and again you'll come across something that seems really contradictory. Jesus said, God withholds forgiveness from people if they don't forgive first. I'm not going to argue with Jesus. Ever, because he's always right. But what I will do is think this. Who was Jesus talking to? Who was Jesus talking to? And what part of covenant history was he teaching in? Well, he was speaking in the time before the blood of the new covenant was shed. And so after the new covenant, Jesus keeps teaching through Paul. Same spirit, same God. And he says to this community, all your sins have been for you. Both of them were right, but they both spoke to different communities at different points in covenant history. And so this is why we have a term called something revelation. Progressive revelation. Where God over history has revealed himself, Hebrews something verse something. Let's say 12 verse 1. Hebrews, uh, no, God has spoken to our ancestors in the past in many ways and in various forms through the prophets. He's spoken, revealing. Hebrews 1. Yeah, that that sounds right. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Yeah, of course it is. That's right. Um, God has spoken in the past, revealing picture after picture after picture, shadow after shadow after shadow after (laughs) shadow. But now in these last days, in the age of fulfillment, God has spoken to us in the clearest form possible. He's given us himself in the flesh. He's spoken to us in the Son. And all that is correct. All that is right. All that is accurate. But it was just a glimpse and a glimpse and a glimpse and a glimpse of who God really is. So Job, the book of Job written around here sometime, or the sacrifices written over here, or the conquests, or the killings, or the whatever, any time through here, God can reveal something of himself to you. But it will never be as clear as the picture we have of Jesus. Okay, the clearest picture, the final piece in the puzzle that now makes everything make sense. The whole Bible is spirit-inspired. And in order to understand the New Testament... You've got to understand the old. We are an all-Bible people. We're a New Testament church. We don't read the old. (laughs) Excuse me. There is one book, one Bible, okay? One Bible. To be a New Testament people, you better understand this because all this provides the language and the build-up to what happens over here. But you won't really understand this properly unless you understand how... The fulfillment of those promises and pictures and shadows and types was fulfilled truly in Jesus. That's why we're an all Bible people. That's why, in my church, I will do series on New Testament books, but I'll most certainly do series on Old Testament books. I'll preach old because I'll preach all because the whole counsel of God. God has one book. He has the Word of God, and it is a unified story. And many Christians don't know the story. They don't see it because their Bible is like those puzzle pieces scattered on the table. It's all good. I know God gave it to me. There's beauty in that piece. Oh, look at that. So I'm yeah, whatever, Miriam. Isn't she great? That's awesome. Okay, look at this. Oh, yeah, some great verses in Isaiah, mainly after chapter 40, okay? <laughs> don't, don't, don't read the rest of it. We'll put those pieces over there. All right. But listen, you don't really understand the value of those pieces until you see the whole thing put together and you know where that picture fits. Chad, what's your point? To understand what we're reading, author and audience is a a consideration. Another major consideration is where does my piece fit in the big picture view? In the big picture view, consider the covenant, consider chronology, consider uh, uh, culture, which I haven't had any time to get into, because the foreground information only makes sense when you understand and have a grasp of the big picture. Otherwise, you'll do what a lot of Christians do and get lost in the detail and can't see the forest because of the trees and you just can't see the big picture. It is a really helpful thing. I I hope that that has helped in some way give you an idea of the Bible story while omitting a whole stack of details because who the heck does anyone think they are telling the whole Bible story in one morning? How much time do we have? 20 minutes do you need to stand up or you're all still okay let's save q and r for for a few minutes okay i'll just go for the 20 minutes while i'm while i'm rolling oh chad's had three coffees today i can tell Um, I know, work out, it's easy to know what the Bible says, because the hard work's been done for you by translators, basically, thanks fellas, it's another thing to know what the Bible means, to discover this we are after the author's intended meaning, not your meaning, no, the author's meaning. And then to do that, we need to consider our ABCs. Who is the author and audience? Where does this fit in the big picture backdrop and background? C, the third thing I want you to consider, is corroborating your content. Corroborate your content. In the Old Testament, when Israel became a nation and they had a judicial system to punish criminals, Moses or God said to Moses, don't punish a criminal unless you have two or three witnesses one testimony is not enough especially if there's capital punishment involved you must confirm empirical evidence by two or three evidence, uh, by two or three witnesses and that forms the basis of western judicial system today and science we don't just go on one thing we back it up two or three times test and check okay this is what corroborating contents about before you draw a conclusion on the meaning of a text make sure you can especially if it's serious back it up with two or three corroborating evidences from elsewhere in the bible because the bible is the bible's best interpreter use scripture to interpret scripture use the bible to explain itself okay if you read um a thorn in the flesh was given me a messenger of satan to buffet me i said to the lord take it away from me three times and he said My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And you sit around in your Bible study, and the question is asked, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? How do you find that answer? Let's get that on the recording. Is there any other thorns in the flesh in the Bible? Oh, so you go to the Bible first before Google? That's a, that's, a, that's a concept. That's exactly what you do. Paul used the term thorn in the flesh. Now, it's pretty darn obvious that he wasn't—he didn't walk into a thorn bush and he had a little thing stuck in his arm, okay? Because as we're going to find out later, there's different styles of speech used in the Bible. Not everything's literal, okay? Some things are metaphoric and allegory and whatever. It's a figure of speech. But what did Paul mean when he said thorn in the flesh? Well, you can either take it literally or you think, no, that's a saying. He means something else. Does the Bible provide an answer? So what you do is you pick up your fourth Bible that I told you to have yesterday. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. You go to your something blue Bible and you type in the word thorn. And you look up every reference of the word thorn in the Bible. And you will find pretty quick That over here, Moses uses the term thorn in the side or thorn in the flesh. He says to the people of Israel, in the book of Numbers or Judges, you can look it up. In fact, I think it's in two books. He says to them, listen, when you go into the promised land, if you don't deal with the people who are there and you leave them there, they're going to oppose you all the time and they're going to end up being thorns in your side. Then, in the book of Judges, an angel comes to someone, I don't know everything, come on. An angel comes to someone and says, listen, because you haven't dealt with those people, the heza, meza, Vegemites, whatever, I can't remember, because you haven't dealt with them, they are going to be thorns in your flesh. They're going to be thorns in your side. Well, that's interesting. Is it possible that with two uses in the Old Testament, talking about people who share the same geography as God's people, but have very different values, and will end up persecuting, harassing, haranguing, and being an agitation to them. That's what God says over here is a thorn in the side. Is it possible that when Paul says, I have a thorn in my side, thorn in my flesh, that that's what he was doing? He was using a colloquialism from the Old Testament? Well... There's two testimonies, two witnesses that say that's possible. Are there any more? Well, if you read through the pages of the book of Acts and you follow Paul's journey, what was the main thing that harassed him, that buffeted him? Persecution. Everywhere he went, persecution, persecution, persecution. It always came, by the way, from the religious community out of which he'd come. So it came from people that shared his same geography but shared very different values. That sounds familiar. When you go into the land, you'll be sharing the same geography, but very different values. They're going to be a pain in your side. Okay. When you read on in that same verse in Corinthians, a thorn in my flesh, Jesus wouldn't take it away from me. So what do I do? I rejoice in hardships, persecutions, uh, uh, harassment, and," and he lists human persecution. So... It seems to me there's at least two or three evidences there that point to Paul using thorn in the flesh, referring to human troublemakers that were harassing him. Now, if you want, you can go Google and you can sit with your Bible study and you can go, thorn in the flesh, maybe it was cancer, maybe it was pornography, maybe it was this and maybe it was that and maybe let's speculate and speculate and speculate and speculate and whatever, do that if you want, titillate your intellectual fancies. But... Isn't it a lot better to corroborate your content by going to the Scripture? Saying, what does the Bible say? Let's let the Bible interpret itself. And so when Paul says, very similar example while we're on the same page, while Paul says to the Galatians, Listen, when I first came to you, I had a bodily ailment. And it was, you didn't uh, scorn me. Because of that, you didn't despise me, but you welcomed me as if I was God's angel. In fact, you love me so much, you would have even taken out your eye and given it to me. What was that bodily ailment? What was the other translations say, word for word translations, those who were here yesterday? Infirmity of the flesh. What is that? What was this thing that was so gross that people could have scorned him, but they didn't, they welcomed him? What was it that maybe affected his eyes? Because he says, huh? Pink? Okay, let's speculate, shall we? So w- what we do is we go to Google or we look up, you know, you get onto your uh, Google and you go, uh, most gross eye conditions known to man. Blah, blah, blah. And you read up all these, you know, it's conjunctivitis and it's pink eye and it's blah, these could have been the things that Paul had. Or do you look in the Bible? and see if the Bible provides an answer. Paul's writing to the Galatians, and he says, when I first came to you, I had this ailment. So where else in the Bible would you read about Paul first coming to the Galatians? The book of Acts. Yay! Whenever you do a preaching series, pastors in the room, on a book of Paul, for example, so we did Philippians last year, personally, I never start a series on a book of the Bible at chapter 1, verse 1, particularly if if it's Paul. Philippians 1, verse 1, if we did a series on Philippians, I'll always start it in the book of Acts. Because you want to see how Paul went to Philippi before you then see what he wrote to them. Okay, so you always start in the book of Acts with Paul. So you read the book of Acts and you look at when he first went to Galatia. Well, what happened when he first went to Galatia? southeastern Galatia, where we think that letter was written to. Paul went to a place called Lystra. And guess who was there? Thorn in the flesh, okay? They hated him. They pelted him with rocks, stoned him to the point where they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. They took up rocks and they threw it at his face. His face. They hit him in the eye. They hit him in the head. They hit him over his body. They looked at him. They thought he was dead, gave him a good kick and went, that guy's is dead. And they went back into town. His mates come out and they pull him up off, off his feet somehow, battered, bloodied, bruised, open wounds from a death defying stoning. They drag him back into the city and the next morning they walk 95 kilometres to Galatia. No hospital, no makeup, no plastic surgery. Paul walks in, however long the journey took, probably two or three days, to Galatia, having been just survived. A death-defying stoning. And what does Paul do when he gets to Galatia? He preaches. It's so the first thing he does. He doesn't go to hospital. He starts to preach the gospel. So when Paul first went to Galatia and preached, what bodily ailment does the book of Acts say he had? It doesn't say he had conjunctivitis. It doesn't say he had pink eye. It doesn't say he had a, a fungus or something. The book of Acts tells us the bodily ailment that he had his face was battered and bruised and maybe still open wound bleeding from a stoning. My mum fell over the other day and because she's an old person, she didn't fall over. She had a fall, okay? That's the difference. That's how you know when you're old. I had a fall. And dad, dad showed me the photo. Man, she fell flat in her face. Her whole, her, all her eyes are bruised. Like it looks, you know, you know, don't take, you know, whatever. Um, she looks terrible. It is When someone looks really battered and bruised, it is easy to go, ugh, gross, I don't want to look. Paul said that to the Galatians. You looked at me, and even though my bodily ailment was something you could have despised me or scorned me, you actually embraced me to the point where you would have even given me your own eye. What's the most logical, corroborating your content view of what Paul's bodily ailment was? It was a battered eye, battered face, from a death-defying stoning. And so as you keep reading Galatians, in chapter 1 he says, I had a bodily ailment. In chapter 6, when he closes that letter, because that's how we read the Bible, we read it from start to finish. In chapter 6, as he closes that letter, he says, Today, even now, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He didn't have stigmata. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He had scars, scratches, Bruisings may be still damage from persecution from religious authorities, which is exactly what Jesus suffered. Paul tells us the Bible explains itself most of the time. and particularly when it comes to serious issues, women shouldn't speak, for example, from yesterday, or um, whatever I don't want to, that's, I want to hang on about that. but when it comes to drawing a serious conclusion, don't go on one verse. He who is baptised believes and is baptised shall be saved. Water baptism is mandatory for salvation and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You must speak in tongues or you're not saved. Okay, that's my conclusion from that one verse. Okay, good one. You can start a whole church on that. (laughs) Off the tape. (laughs) If you want to start a cult, okay, if you want to start a cult, take one verse... Don't consider how it fits in. Don't corroborate it with anything else. Just take one verse and major on that. and That's the way you start a cult. Corroborate your content. Check it out with two or three witnesses. Those examples from Paul are really basic, but there's far more serious ones than that. Last thing. We finish at 10.30. Get a pen and paper. We're going to have a quiz. Write down 1 to 10. The last thing in the ABCs of exegesis. I know that's what it says, but what does it mean? We need to consider the style of speech of the biblical author. And in very simple terms that academics would groan at if they heard me simplify this simply. Sometimes the Bible is literal. And it's supposed to be understood literally. But Sometimes the Bible uses figurative language. And the author does not want you to take him literally. It doesn't matter whether you think it sounds literal. It's not your job to decide what it means. It's your job to discover the author's meaning. What did he mean? Well, Chad, I take all the Bible literally. Well, guess what? Next time someone sins against you, you better make sure you forgive them 490 times exactly. <laughs> because Jesus said, forgiveness doesn't count unless you forgive 70 times 7 times. And did Jesus literally mean that? Did he really mean 490? 386 times is not enough. It needs to be 490. No, Jesus, as the word made flesh, often spoke in non-literal ways and it got him into trouble all the time. That's why when he said, you must be born again, Nicodemus freaked out and thought, how the heck will I get into my mother's womb again? That's why when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, they used that against him in his trial to think, who do you think you are? You're just a carpenter, carpenter's son, can dare rebuild this temple in three days, you idiot. He's like, no, you missed the point, lads. When Jesus said, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh, a whole stack of people walked away because that's what he said, but that's not what he meant. Okay. When Jesus said to the woman at the well, I have water that if you drink, you'll never be thirsty again. Was he talking about H2O? And if so, why the heck was he asking this poor woman to get him water if he already had a self-supply? Like, How rude is that? No, he wasn't talking about H2O. He was using a figure of speech. Figures of speech are all through the Bible. And guess what? They are in every book, by every author, in every genre, no matter, all through the Bible. This is where lots of books on hermeneutics, and I, I said one yesterday, spend most of their time talking about genre. And that's helpful. Because in some genres, prophets, for example... Poetry, for example, apocalypse, for example, John over here in Revelation. Some books have more figures of speech than others. Fine, but figures of speech are everywhere. Okay, even prophecy begins not in the prophets. Prophecy doesn't even begin in Deuteronomy, where where, where Solomon uh, Moses does his famous song. Prophecy begins in the first chapters. You. He will bite your heel, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. What's that? That's a prophecy right here. The book of origins contains prophecy. Okay, the origin stories in Genesis are actually prophetic stories, which is why all these people over here, the prophets and the apostles, look back at Genesis and find prophetic significance in them because they're not just origin stories, they're prophetic stories. Prophecy, prophetic, poetry, allegory, metaphor, figures of speech are used all the way through. And Jesus is a prime example. So we're going to have a quiz right now. It's Passion Week. 24 hours leading up to Jesus' death, he makes 10 statements. Number 1 to 10, all I want you to do is write down, literal or non-literal. Literal Literal or non-literal. Does Jesus mean what he said? Or does he mean something else when he said this? Number one. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. He will show you a large room upstairs all furnished. Literal or non-literal? Number two. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. Literal or non-literal? Number three. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Literal? Non-literal? Number four, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. (laughs) Literal or non-literal? Number five, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Literal, non-literal. Number six. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Literal? Non-literal. Seven. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven literal or non-literal number eight jesus turned and said to them daughters of jerusalem don't weep for me but yourselves and your children for the time will come when you will say blessed are the childless women the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things, when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Literal or non-literal? Number nine, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Literal or non-literal? Number 10. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. Literal or non-literal? Woman, here is your son. And to the beloved disciple, here is your mother. Some of them super easy? Maybe. Some of them need a little thought? Do you think we're going to agree on all of them? How about I do the Jesus thing and say, I'll release the answers soon. <laughs> we might compare notes if we're, if we're courageous. Point is this. All of those quotes come from the Word made flesh and Jesus never lied. I'll, I'll never say that. Um, in fact, even, even C.S. Lewis, I was listening to an interview talking about C.S. Lewis today, one of the greatest thinkers of the previous century, and he talked about how embarrassing it was that Jesus said all these things will happen in this generation. Some people have even gone as far as to say that Jesus missed it, that he was wrong. I can't bring myself to say that. I have to say Jesus was always right. But I also have to say Jesus did not always speak literally and you're not meant to understand everything you said literally. It's not, do I read the Bible literally? Do I read it non-literally? How do you read it? I don't care how you read it, quite frankly. I care about this. What does the author want you to know? What's the author trying to do? That is where our discovery is. What does the author mean? And that sounds simple, but it can be difficult. We need to. Appreciate the author and audience. Appreciate the big picture background that help you put it in place. Corroborate your content before you come to a conclusion. And appreciate the style of speech. And understanding that is a huge subject. Like I said, the big, biggest hermeneutics book in the world spends 80, 90% of the book, Gordon Fee, just talking about genres. It's a significant thing. Literal and non-literal doesn't cut it. But maybe for everyday people, that that's probably really all we need to know. Not all the Bible is supposed to be taken literally. So I say this, (laughs) a bit like Donald Trump and the lessons that American politics could have learned in 216. You can take the man seriously without taking everything literally. Some people didn't take him seriously and they were totally blindsided when he won because they think because he doesn't speak literally, we can dismiss him no sometimes people speak non-literally for, for him it might be because he's wrong for the bible it's because it's deliberate you can deliberately speak allegorically you can take the whole bible seriously but without having to take it literally i take every word of the bible seriously even obadiah <laughs> who's read obadiah recently yeah maybe. oh okay great tom top of the class you can take Obadiah seriously. You can take the whole Bible seriously without taking it all literally. Okay. It all depends what the author's intending. and Sometimes that's quite easy to work out. Thorn in the flesh. Well, you didn't even have to think too hard to go, it's a figure of speech. There's something else. Okay. But sometimes it's a little harder. The point is, you can do it. And the tools God has given you to discern these things... He's always given you the Spirit. The Bible is the only book where the author's with you every time you read it, so use him. God's given you the saints. There are people who've spent the best part of their lives looking at biblical languages, far better than all of us in this room put together. And so when you read something like Jesus meeting Paul on the Damascus Road and saying it is difficult for you to kick against the goads, You go, I've got no idea what kicking against the goads means. Someone does. Because someone's researched it. They know what it means. And they know that it's a figure of speech. And rely on other people. Lean on other people. Philip, here's a man, a eunuch from Ethiopia, reading Isaiah the prophet. And he's reading it aloud. And Philip's like, comes up to the side of the chair and just sort of eavesdrops for a bit. And then he finds his point of entry. And he says, do you know what you're reading, mate? And the Ethiopian says... How can I, unless somebody else explains it to me? When you read the Bible, understand that sometimes you just need someone else to explain it to you, and that's okay. That's why God's planned it. God has given you the Spirit. God has given you the saints. And God has given you clear logic, a thinking brain, go through the process, put these things into place, and those tools will help you discern the author's meaning. Knowing what the Bible says... It's pretty simple. You just read the darn thing. Knowing what the Bible means sounds simple, but it can be complex. But you can do it. And the idea of these two steps is that it is basically a scientific process. You're reaching an objective goal. It is what it is. And it means what it means. Next session. Hermeneutics goes from becoming a science to an art. Where there's not necessarily one objective answer, there can be many answers and many of them are okay. Where it's a bit more of an intuition, there's a bit more of a depends on your circumstance, a bit more of, well, how it matters to you may be different than how it matters to me because we're different and that's okay. These first steps are a bit more objective, but now we're going to move into how the Bible matters to us. And there's a bit more art required there so that's why you often hear people refer to hermeneutics as both a science and an art a science and an art and that's what we're going to move into after coffee okay do we do do you want to do Q&A now or let's do it after I just decided should we do should we do a quick Q&A now Q and R, not Q and on. Don't freak out. Should we do a quick Q and R? Anyone? Yeah, okay, we'll do that. Any questions, or just keep bumping? No, that's good. No, if you're, if you're trying that hard, it's, it's not obvious. That's, that's fine. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not pulling teeth. <laughs> that's right, and you're all answering each other. I need to sit back on the stool again. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. Here we go. Three-step process. Ezra read the book of the Lord translating it. You've got to read the Bible because you're asking yourself, what does it say? Good, good first step. Then it says the Levites explain the meaning. Nehemiah 8 verse 8. They explained the meaning of what was read. Then the people responded in Nehemiah 8, verse 9 and 10. And they responded by crying because they knew that somehow what God had said meant something, and we have to respond to that somehow today. And they thought that the best way to respond was by crying. And Nehemiah said, No, actually, for us, that's not the best response. That's not the appropriate response for us. You've understood what it says, we've explained to you what it means but it matters to us, it matters that actually we're in a period of history where we're supposed to be responding with joy. And so it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So when it comes to how the Bible matters to us, remember, we're not asking what does it mean to you. That's not a legitimate question. It's legitimate to say, what do you think it means? What do you think the author meant? That's fine, that's what we're just the author's meaning. But over here, then we ask the question, well, how does that matter to you? What, what significance does that have to my life? What implications does it have? What possible applications? And I say possible applications because we can't apply all the Bible. And not all of it is applicable to us at all. But all of it has some type of implication. There's something we can learn from it. There's something we can glean from it. But, um, so there's implications and applications for us today. And that may vary from person to person. So, John the Baptizer comes along, and I don't call him a Baptist because he wasn't like any Baptist I've ever known, okay? <laughs> John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer comes along, and he, and this is what he says Repent, the kingdom of heaven's near, um, save yourselves from the wrath that is to come the axe is already at the root of the tree and everything that that does not repent will be burned up, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's what he said. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay. What did that mean? Well, repent means to change, change the way you think. So basically what it meant was that people needed to change the way they thought and particularly, specifically, change the way they thought about the timing of kingdom come. Because no matter what they thought about the kingdom, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, we've not got another 400 years. Daniel prophesied it. We've been waiting for 400 years. Daniel's ticking time clock has been coming. Guess what? Ooh, we're right at that period. Okay, there is something happening. It is, the time is now. So you need to, whatever you thought about the timing of kingdom come, change the way you think it's now. Change the way you think. Then also, there was some change of behaviour. Because he said this, repent and be baptised. He baptised for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he said. What did that mean? Well, it meant it demanded something upon their behaviour. So the way they thought and the way they, they, uh, they acted. It meant, it meant something. That, no, sorry, Chad, you're getting ahead of yourself. You're mixing the two steps up. It meant the kingdom of God is here and there's impending wrath for God's enemies. Okay, The axe is already at the root of the tree. There's impending wrath for God's enemies, so make sure you're not one of them. How does that matter to the listeners? How did they take his meaning? The kingdom of God's now and wrath is right at the door. How did they take that meaning and find application? Well, there was two main implications. One is that they needed to change the way they thought. That's how it mattered to them. And the second is that they needed to change some behaviour. And there was, two, there was different behaviours that came out. Everyone that heard John's message, it says, got baptised in water. And that seems to be, if you read all the three Gospel accounts, a universal, one-size-fits-all behavioural implication. Everyone got baptised in water, it says. That was a one-size-fits-all. That's what he said. That's what he means. How does it matter to us? Get baptised in water. But then there were other implications or applications That varied between people to people, because some of these people were saying, "Well, John, I'm a tax collector. How do I take your message and meaning and apply it to me as a tax collector?" And he said, "Make sure you don't rob people." And then someone said, "Well, hang on, I've got a spare jacket at home. How do I apply that in my life?" And he said, "Oh, well, if you've got a spare jacket, make sure you share it with someone. Those of you who've got spare spare clothes." And then someone said, "Well, I'm a soldier. What about me?" And he said, well, the message hasn't changed, the meaning hasn't changed, but how it matters to you as a soldier is this, don't be overpowering in your authority or whatever he says. What's your point, Chad? The point is, there was one message. It had one meaning, what John meant. When it came to the application, sometimes there was one application. Baptism for everyone. You're all in on it. One size fits all. Sometimes there was different applications depending on the person listening. So it's the same with us. The Bible says what it says. You can't change it. Who do you think you are? It says what it says. It means what the author meant. Okay? Our job's not to decide. Our job is to discover the meaning that's always been there. A-I-M. The author's intent to mean. But how it matters to us may differ person to person. May differ culture to culture may differ sex to sex, gender to gender, whatever word you prefer, may differ community to community, or it may not. There may be what said and what meant may have a universal one-size-fits-all application. So water baptism, for example, as you continue to read through the New Testament, it seems like that message keeps being repeated. Everyone should be water baptized that seems pretty consistent no i'm getting ahead of myself fine so that's that you understand what i'm saying so how it (laughs) i'm gonna have to use that i'll use that i'll come back to that later the significance the implications may differ but they may uh be one size fits all and so that is where and i alluded to this earlier this is where hermeneutics becomes more of an art because it has a little bit more discerning of where it might be different for you than it is to me and that's okay Uh, Whereas over here it's far more objective. And everyone said, "Amen." That's sorry. That's my Pentecostal background. You meant to know what to say. (laughs) Let me try this. Peace be with you. Yeah. Okay. Different. Different crowd. Um, (laughs) um, Okay. So that's that. Okay. Now our key text is two Timothy two fifteen. Be a good worker, who doesn't need to be ashamed but who correctly handles the word of truth. Have you ever heard that said differently? Correctly handles the word of truth. No? Well, maybe, but I haven't. Okay, have you heard this phrase? Who rightly divides the word of truth. Have you heard that? Okay. Um, Bibles that have a thought for thought say correctly handle it or treat it properly or whatever. Word for word translations say... Who rightly divide the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. Who rightly divide. So what you do is you go on your something blue Bible and you click on the word rightly divide. What on earth is that? And it literally means to cut in a straight line. Paul is saying to Timothy, as you handle your Bible, you need to cut. You need to make some cuts in it, mate. But make sure you cut it straight. Now, we know that's what it says. What does that? Okay, we'll think about Paul. What type of background did he have? He was a tent maker. He was a tradie. Okay, and anything you know about trades, if you're building a tent, you're into carpentry, he was cutting timber, he was cutting cloth, and you better make sure you measure twice and cut once. Okay, make sure you make a clean cut or the whole thing can be in jeopardy. So I'm going to take a little bit of artistic license because this is the artistic part of hermeneutics and I'm going to suggest that there are some cuts we need to make as we read the Bible there's certain distinctions we need to make it's not this it's that it's not this it's that and we need a clear cut as we seek to understand the implications of truth for our life today this will make sense as we go I don't have room this is the first cut I want to encourage you to make as you read the Bible as you seek to find the implication for your life Make a clear cut, rightly divide the word of truth. Make a clear cut between that which is major and that which is minor. Nah. Yeah, yeah, leave it there. That's fine. Yeah, we'll come now. We won't write down there. Thank you. We'll come back to it. That which is major and that which is minor. Some people came to Jesus one day being smarty pants. And they said, hey Jesus, what's the most important thing in the law? Okay. And Jesus said, how dare you ask that question? All the laws equally important. No, it didn't. Yeah, come on guys, come on. Help me, my Pentecostal roots are really struggling now. You've been too quiet. <laughs> Have you seen, I shared on social media the other day a Bernie meme. You've seen all the Bernie memes with his, uh, with his gloves just sitting there like this. And on one side it's a Pentecostal board with a sermon, Bernie. And on the other side it's a Baptist enjoying a sermon. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, let's take that off the tape. Uh, Jesus did not say all scripture is equally important. He said, I'll tell you which is the most important. Love the Lord you got up in the heart, of my son, say love your neighbours yourself. Those two verses are more important. Or are the highest value verses than anything that Moses or that's written in the Law and the Prophets, Okay, anything in the Tanakh, this part of the Bible. Those verses and the truths they reveal are more important than other things. And so he says to the Pharisees in the same passage, he says, listen, you guys are really good at tithing, even the smallest little herb in your garden, but you've forgotten the more important matters of mercy and justice or whatever it is. So he's saying again, yes, the Bible teaches tithing and herbs and whatever, if you want to do that, Yes, do that. You should do that. But it also teaches mercy and justice. And guess what? One of them is more important than the other. Okay. So Jesus is saying some truths are more important than others. Chris Vallartin would say not all truths are created equal. Okay. Not all truths are created equal. And I love the way it's put in one of the in some translations where it says all the law and the prophets hang off these two commands: love God, love people. And I see, and I don't know whether this is what Jesus meant, but again, we're being artistic now in the art of hermeneutics. I'm seeing a mobile, um, like a suspended mobile, where you've got a crossbar at the top and everything else dangles off it and it flaps in the breeze. Okay. Loving God and having a relationship with Him. Loving people well and relating with them well. These are the crossbars. These are the two truths that hold all other biblical truth, which means that ultimately the most important thing that the Bible has to teach us is relationship relationship with God, relationship with others. Okay, that's why I said right at the start, you can leave here being more passionate about the Bible and wanting to know the Bible better and that's fine, but I don't want you to know the Bible better, I want you to know God better. The reason for the Bible is to get to know God, because knowing Him and loving others, that's the most important thing, not biblical knowledge itself. Okay, so all other truths come off that. If you take away these two most important things, everything else collapses. As you read the Bible, You know what it says. You know what it means. How do I find significance and implication and application to our life today? My encouragement to you is make sure you make a right cut. Distinguish between that which is major and that which is minor, that which is central and that which is peripheral, and give your attention to the main things. Keep the main things the main things. If you want to start a cult, (laughs) don't do that. You major on the minors. You major on your view of Israel in eschatology or your view of the 12 things in the seven heads of the seven horns or whatever. That's what you do if you want to start cold you major on minor things no have a big picture and major on the majors some truths are more important than others and some truths warrant less time and less attention and you all know that I'm going to prove it to you memory verse challenge another game John 316. For those on the tape, I think they got it right. John 3.16. For God's sake I the Lord, He gave us his son, who would believe in my spirit, have eternal life. Who said that? Yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, we had to be here yesterday. Okay, next verse, John 3.16. Let's all quote Judges 3.16. Okay, fill in the gaps. For Ehud made a sword that was 18 inches long that he that he kept under his <laughs> strapped to his right thigh under his cloak okay judges 316 what's the matter with you people judges 316 Ehud made a sword that was 18 inches long he strapped to his right thigh under his tunic that's your memory verse for the week it's judges 316 all of us know John 3.16. None of you know Judges 3.16. But they are both equally true. Both equally Scripture. Both equally true. But one is more important than the other. One speaks to the internal destiny of people, believing in Jesus. And that's why you know it. It's more important than Judges 3.16. The fact that there was a guy called Ehud that had a sword that he strapped his right thigh under his tunic. Okay. 18 inches, exactly. A uh, double-edged sword, it says to in some translations. A, so, John 3.16 and Judges 3.16 are equally true, but they're not equally important. As you seek to discover implication for scriptural truth, keep the main thing the main thing, okay? Focus major on the major, minor on the minors. If you want a healthy Bible study, you want a healthy spiritual life, healthy church life, if that's your job, okay? Major on the majors, minor on the ma- minors. Clear cut. Second cut you should make is we rightly divide the word of truth may distinguish between those things which are clear and those things which are cloudy. Okay. It's okay to admit that some scriptures are not entirely clear. Okay. when I, said, I mentioned this yesterday. Paul writes to the Galatians, and he's like very passionate about not disturbing the gospel. And it's God's gospel. You don't mess with it. I clearly portrayed Christ as crucified, he said. But then he writes to the Romans and he said, But now, when it comes to disputable matters, don't let your faith stumble other people. Okay, when it comes to disputable matters, there's some things that are open to debate, there's some things that are open to discussion, and you just major on the major things, minor on the major things, concentrate on the clear things, and acknowledge that some things are disputable and that's okay. All right? Disputable things should it's okay to stay that way. Just because you have an opinion on something, it doesn't mean you need to be opinionated. Okay, Just because you have a view, it doesn't mean you need to divide over that view. Is it important and is it particularly clear? Well, on major things and clear things, maybe. Okay. And within the family of Uniting Church, well, since I'm under this roof, we all know in the last 10 or 20 years, some people have seen things in the Uniting Church family and have said, you know what? It's clear to us and it's major enough that we're going to make a decision, okay, to not be part of the Uniting Church anymore. But unfortunately, church, the church life is scattered with divisions where they've divided over things that aren't clear, particularly clear, and neither are they particularly major, okay? We need to be among those who major on majors or minor on minors, who make clear what is clear, and when it comes to clouded issues, we agree to disagree and acknowledge that that's okay, all right? So if you think it's premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, whatever, if Babylon's the flipping catholic church or the some communist society or the baptists or whatever i don't care you believe whatever you want to believe let's not divide and let's not define ourselves by clouded issues let's be humble enough to admit some things are super clear and other things it's okay if we disagree okay we agree to disagree these things should not define us and these things should not divide us exactly <laughs> that's right I don't know no no but but it's something no the, the question is what is clear super clear for some people is cloudy for others and uh and that that's right and I think that's where we we try to do our best maintaining these things and particularly the saints the fact that there is so many books written of different es- eschatological positions makes it pretty clear that it's not clear Okay, um, the, the fact that there are so many views on what Paul meant in Timothy when you read it yesterday about Adam and Eve and Eve sinned sin first and therefore, 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 so many ink has been spilled on that instantly tells you we're not really sure and it's kind of okay to not be sure. Let's not major on that when it's such an unclear uh, type of issue. Um, so yeah, but, but no, that, that's exactly right. I don't know because what, what's major to pe- some people is minor to others. And yeah, but I know for me, I want to keep, I, at least let's recognise that. And let recognise it exists, because some people don't recognise it exists. And that's probably the people that you'll probably cause the biggest problems, is those who think every matter in the scripture is so important we should divide over it, when even the scripture itself says there's some things that are more important than others. Okay, and some things are more clear than others. Yeah? A question that when we're sort of reading scripture and we come
1: along, along with people, have different viewpoints how do we distinguish like what is major and what is minor like if it makes sense
0: i think those two crossbars are a good place to start if it has to do with your relationship with god and eternal there's eternal implications on this then that that would be kind of top of the list and how it affects our relationship with god and my love relationship with him and um yeah relating with other because relationships most important uh, does certain views on eschatology or whether you dunk someone three times or just one time in water, does that really affect our relationship with God? I don't know. No. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think you once you know what the Bible says is the most important thing, feed yourself on that and focus on that. Uh, yeah. um, another division is distinguish between what's descriptive and what is prescriptive. Is that a good one, Shane? Descriptive and prescriptive. There's certain things that the Bible says this is how it should be. They're direct commands. There are certain things in the Bible that just tell a story and describe how it was for Joseph. But that doesn't mean that's how it should be for you. We often see preachers making this mistake. You get up, the preacher gets up, and I read the story of Joseph forgiving his brothers. It means, uh, it, it, what this is what forgiveness means. Therefore, unless you forgive people exactly like Joseph did, it doesn't count. Okay, the Bible itself doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say, the Bible itself doesn't say, this is how you should forgive. It just tells us the story of Joseph, forgiving that way. So be careful in making this leap To say, just because that's prescriptive, it doesn't make it descriptive. Abraham said, only get a wife for Isaac from our own people, not from another race. Well, the Bible says you should not marry people from other races. No, it described his situation. That doesn't mean it's a prescription to anybody else unless the Bible explicitly says it's a prescription, don't make it one. You can still learn from that example and, and try to understand the reasoning at the time, but don't make, make the distinction between something that is simply descriptive, that's how it was for them, and something that is prescriptive. This is how it is for us, or this is an instruction to us. Okay, So I come from a church history where We saw, we read the book of Moses, we read the book of Moses, we saw Moses saying, build according to pattern, according to the pattern shown you on the mountain and our leader said in Acts it shows us the pattern of how church should be, therefore we should have church like this, should have church like this. Well, does it say that? No, the book of Acts just describes how the church was in those 30 years. There's nothing that says this then is how it should be for time and eternity for everyone else. Just be careful in reading something descriptive and making it prescriptive, particularly for people that love rules, okay, and love being told what to do. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. They have more of an inclination to read prescription into what is just actually an example and a description, okay. Another one, make a distinction between what is theirs And what is yours? What is theirs? What is true for them? And what is yours? Because again, you might be very different to the person in the Bible that you're reading about. Okay, what is theirs and what is yours? All the Bible is written for you, but it's not all written to you. What is theirs and what is yours? So when Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately evil and wicked... And when David says, create in me a clean heart, good for you, David. That's David crying out for something. He wanted a new heart desperately. That was true for him. Now, does that mean that that's a prayer that you should pray? Because in the New Testament, we're told that when we come to Christ, we get given a new heart. David cried out for a new heart he never got one he was never born again can you say to God as a born-again person who has been given a new heart give me a new heart Lord or you're asking something for some for him for something you've already got can you say your heart is desperately wicked or should you say I had a desperately wicked heart and God took it out and I was born again and he gave me a new one Okay, we'll wear that that later. Just because he said that, what was true for him, doesn't necessarily mean it's true for you. Okay, what was theirs does not mean it's yours. So again, sacrifice a bull. Okay, well, that's not for me. Okay, you must be circumcised. Okay, that's not for me. That was for them, but it's not for me. I'm making a distinguishing. Everything God said to them, matters to me somehow. I can learn from it. But it doesn't mean I need to implement it because what was said to them may not be necessarily said to me because I'm very different. I'm in a different covenant with God. I'm in a different point in history. I understand the Bible has a story. I understand there are distinguishing points in that story. And the cross is probably the... Probably. You idiot. The cross is definitely the most defining moment in the biblical story. And I'm on that side of the cross where I have a relationship with God that people over here never had. So don't assume that things that were true for Old Testament people and even things that were true for certain people in the Gospels, before the cross, don't assume those things are true for you. Be discerning. Make a distinction. What was theirs and what's mine? Is that always easy? No. Okay. (laughs) So you read Timothy yesterday as a group. And you read the verse that said, "Go to Troas, fetch me my cloak, bring it to me, get the scrolls I gave to Carpus, watch out for Alexander the metalworker." How many of you here have ever obeyed that scripture? <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. How many of you have gone to Troas and got Paul's cloaks and parchments? Okay, you know why? Because you're a bunch of rebels, that's why. And you don't take God's word seriously. Okay, no, no, no. You know what it says, you know what it means. You know who the author and the audience was. The author is Timothy. And while how it mattered to Timothy matters differently to you. Okay, what is theirs is not necessarily yours. So what do you do over here? So you say, well, Lord, why is that verse even in the book? What, what, How does it matter to me at all if I'm not Timothy? Well, this is where you go, Holy Spirit, help me. Is there anything in here from this example, from this historical account, that you want to speak to me? Because the author's with me every time I read it. And you might, by doing that, what you, one of the things you may do is identify yourself with people in the story. What is theirs is not mine, but I am similar to them in some ways. So what I might do is I might read that and I might put myself in the sandals of Timothy. No shoes, of course. Sandals of 1st century Timothy. And I say, Timothy had a, had a spiritual father, a leader, that asked him to do some practical tasks. And the Holy Spirit says to you, guess what? I want you to be willing to serve your leaders with practical menial tasks done, Holy Spirit I'm open to that, okay done. Or you might sit there and you go, I'm going to put myself in the shoes of Paul. Maybe what I'm experiencing with people betraying me and I'm feeling a little bit sidelined, because he says later in that passage, he says, even Demas has set his heart against me, I've got no one except you Timothy. Maybe as I identify with Paul, I feel like the Holy Spirit says to me, be reassured, I'm still called you even though people are Letting go of you. Even though people have let you down, I'm still with you. And maybe as Paul, I look at what he's doing, and what is he doing? He's asking Timothy for help. And so as I'm feeling lonely right now, Holy Spirit just said to me, you need to ask someone to help you, and don't be so proud. I put myself in the sandals of Paul. Maybe as you read that passage, you put yourself in the sandals of Demas. that Because Paul said, even Demas, has, for the love of the world, has deserted me. And you might think, wow, Holy Spirit's telling me that even though I'm part of an awesome church community, even though I have great ministry leaders, imagine Demas, he had Paul as his spiritual leader, and even Demas had the pull of this world pull him away from passion. The Holy Spirit says to you, don't think that just because you've got great leaders and you're part of a great church, great community, that the pull of this world can't get to you as well. You have to walk out your journey, Demas. Don't don't fall for the Demas trap. Maybe that's what God's doing. So, yes, What it says and what it means is set. But I don't dismiss it. I don't say, well, because I'm not Timothy, that verse has no relevance to me. No, it does. It just may not have one-for-one relevance. It just may not have a one-for-one correspondence because I am different to them. I may never go to Troas and get Paul's cloak. Mm, No, never. But there's still something in that passage I can learn. Find out what is theirs and what is yours. And then lastly, make a cut between... The specific practice and the principle and the purpose behind it. The specific practice that the Bible teaches. Distinguish between that and the purpose behind it. The purpose behind it. How many of you have ever been on a Christian camp or leadership group training thing? And someone's brought out the old foot washing basin. You done foot washing? A few of us? Okay. Because Jesus commanded it, you see. He commanded foot washing. And you know this, Maybe I think you're mature enough. I won't spend much time on this. But even though Jesus commanded foot washing, therefore you go and do likewise. There are things in the Bible that have specific practices that are commanded. Don't muzzle your ox while it's treading out the grain. If a man cannot control his oxen and it does damage he shall pay full remedy for it. There are specific practices that are mentioned. And every practice, no matter how remotely culturally different it may seem to us, every practice, no matter how obscure, has God's wisdom behind it somehow. So there is something we can learn from it. And it doesn't mean we need to specifically practice that thing, but we can discern between the practice that has cultural overtones and the principle and the purpose behind it so when jesus says i command you to wash your, wash one another's feet we know that that was a particular because you do your research a particular cultural practice for people that didn't have shoes walked on dirt roads with camel poo and sat on the floor as they ate so as they because leonardo because this guy up here is completely wrong this is not first century culture okay they didn't sit up there on 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 tables they sat on the floor which is why John could lean on Jesus instead of sitting. So they sat here and the picnic blankets there, for example, the food was there. Sometimes there was these things called Roman couches, which were just off the floor. But either way, they're sitting there with their feet behind them like this and their shoes at the door, feet on a dusty, dusty roads, meant that their feet are like inches away from the food, from stinky, sweaty, dusty camel poo road. And there's the food right there. People next to them had their smelly feet right there. And so they had hand sanitizer at the door, of course, culturally appropriating. And they would not only wash their hands, they'd also wash their feet. It was so normal, so, so normal. It's an everyday thing. Jesus does that. And so that's the specific practice. He commands foot washing. But what was the purpose behind it? Well, he goes on later to explain, love one another as I have loved you. Ultimately, behind that specificity, there was a purpose of loving one another with menial tasks. And so that purpose we can apply in many practical ways to us today without having to foot wash. I washed my wife's feet once when I proposed to her. She said yes and then she said never ever touch my feet again. Is she making, Is she asking me to disobey my Lord? No. I take the principle, the purpose behind that specific practice and I make her coffee every morning because... The world's a better place when that happens. (laughs) There are, And Paul himself does this in the New Testament. He takes this specific Old Testament command from Moses, where Moses talks to farmers, and he says, Listen, farmers, some of you have got an ox, and when it's walking out there and and treading the grain, don't stop it from eating. Let it eat as it works. It needs strength. You need to feed the damn thing well. So look after your ox, would you? Look after your ox. It's a law in our community. And Paul, way over here in the New Testament, hears that specific practice, very specific. It's an agricultural practice for farmers that own oxen, who have wheat. Very, very specific. And he looks back at the principle and the purpose behind it. God's wisdom is somehow behind that. And he takes that principle and he applies it to caring for pastors. Okay, I'm a preacher, so we couldn't go two days without me mentioning offerings. Okay. He applies that to financially supporting pastors or people that preach. He somehow finds the principle and the purpose behind that and brings application into his current situation. And that, while we're not apostles and we can't, we've got to be careful how we do that, okay, we're not rewriting scripture, but we can read the Bible and make a clear cut between the practice and God's wisdom and principle behind it and find ways in our context to implement that practice, implement that purpose in a way that makes sense. So they are some cuts that you can make as you read the scripture, okay? We don't want to cut up the Bible because it's one big story, but as we read it to seek to understand its implications for us, there's some cuts I think we can make and you can probably come up with more. The second thing I want to encourage you to do when it comes to applications and implications, you see, when I'm talking over here, when I'm sitting on this side of the chair, remember, we're dealing with something that's a bit arty, a bit creative okay this is all very scientific this is all a little bit more arty so I'm going to take some real artistic license here Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength as you read the Bible and say how can I find significance for me today I want you to look for joy I want you to ask this can apply to almost every Bible passage almost every Bible passage you read no matter how obscure it is, even over diet. What does this passage have to show me? About Jesus, about others, and about you. Joy. Jesus, others, and you. Because the whole Bible exists to show us what God is like. Somehow you can learn something about the nature of God. Find Jesus. Find God in those pages. Ask yourself, how does this passage help me relate to other people in my life because that's the greatest command it's the most important thing knowing God and loving others okay how does this help me with others that's why when I read through the stories of David and I read how he had issues with Jonathan or King Saul okay and Jonathan and then Absalom later on I look at these days of our lives stories absolute soap operas and I learned something about God's nature, but I learn more about other people's nature. And I understand as a pastor now, as I'm learning to love people, that I've seen the damage that King Saul can have in people's lives. I've had pretty good dads in my life. My natural dad's pretty good. And my spiritual um, father, pastor has been pretty good. I've not had a King Saul. But a lot of Christians have. A lot of Christians have had terrible dads and a lot of Christians have been really damaged by spiritual leaders. And even though I can't identify with them practically, God, by reading these stories, it helps me to understand them. It helps me to understand the damage that was done to David and the victories that he got through that abuse, okay, because of how he dealt with Saul it helps me. To, I'm learning how to love people by reading the Bible. When I read the story of Jonathan and I see a guy who said, David, you're awesome. I'm with you, mate. And then he keeps going back to Saul. And Saul tries to kill David and tries to kill David and tries to kill David. And Jonathan comes and goes, mate, if, if, if I knew my dad was trying to kill you, I'd let you know. I promise. He, he won't. I, I, I'll make it better. And he goes and he tries to calm Saul down and Saul calms down. And then he tries to kill David and tries to kill David. And then Jonathan. He, Saul actually tries to kill Jonathan. He's a violent man. He's an aggressive, repeat offender. And Jonathan just keeps believing the best. That's all right. He sticks with his dad. And while I believe Jonathan possibly should have been at David's side, he stayed attached to Saul. And he died on the battlefield playing for a losing team because he kept believing the best of someone who proved time and time again that he was untrustworthy. He shouldn't have been trusted. And I don't understand that. Cuz I've had people hurt me. And but I don't but I know the difference, and I know what turning the other cheek is like. But I also know that I've only got two cheeks. And so if you've callously and deliberately hit me, I'll give you one more shot. But if you then callously and deliberately hit me again, well, I've turned the other cheek, I've done my bit. That's, that's the way I read that. But some people are like Jonathan. They're stuck in a system where they're being hurt by people, might be in the professional field, might be a pastor, might be a system, and they just keep going back for more and keep getting hit and keep getting hit. And I can't relate to those people through my own personal experience because I haven't been over and over and over again hurt by people like that but I can learn wisdom in how to deal with them by looking at the Bible. The Bible has given me wisdom to, to actually empathise with Jonathan's, even though it's never been my experience. I look at David dealing with, with Absalom. David had a couple of sons, and they were, some of them were ratbags, and one of them rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And Tamar comes in crying to Absalom, big sister a little sister, and Absalom is pissed off. He is really angry. How dare you touch my sister? Amnon runs away or something, I think. And Absalom has anger towards him. And you know what? Damn right. Damn right he should have. David hears about it. And does nothing. Does nothing. Does nothing about it. uh, Absalom goes off. Amnon runs away. And for three years... He harbors this resentment, watching his father do nothing about it. He doesn't confront his son, his own rapist son. Absalom then murders Amnon. Murders his own brother. And what does David do about it? Nothing. He doesn't confront his murdering son. Rape and murder in David's family, and he does nothing about it. And the bitterness that Absalom develops over time, meant that he ended up usurping David's throne. And David, rather than standing up and saying, no, mate, God gave me this throne, back off. David, tail between his legs, just backs off and lets it happen. I'm no psychologist. But some people, the, the power, one thing I've witnessed in people as a pastor, one thing that this teaches me, is that there is, there is incredible power in shame when I mean, people experience shame in their life. And one of the things that shame does is it silences people and shuts them down. You see, David was both a murderer and a rapist. And so when David, I'm getting a few looks, David set up the murder of Uriah. And David raped Bathsheba. Because as you read the story, he sees her flickering by not a big fluorescent light at night time, it was a little candle, <laughs> He sees a piece of flesh, and all us guys know what this is like. He sees a piece of flesh, and his imagination goes wild. Phenyl hits his head, and he goes, there's something I want. And rather than turning away, he gets soldiers from the palace to knock on her door. And so she's at home, towel around her, husband away, soldiers knock on her door, palace guards with shields and swords and whatever they got, and say, the king wants you now. There's no indication in the Bible that that was a willing affair. Okay? She had no choice. She goes to him. And that's why the Bible never, ever, ever, ever says that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. It says the disgraceful thing that David did. David, in my opinion, sexually abused a woman, set up a murder to cover his tracks. And now he's watching his own sons do exactly the same thing. Raped girl, Murder, and the shame of that, the who the hell am I to speak? I can't talk. I did that. It crippled him. Crippling shame meant he could not address, and the whole kingdom turned to, went into turmoil because of that. Personally, I can't fully identify with that. But the Bible can teach me how, because I've come across people in my ministry who've been really crippled by shame and act in certain ways, then I'm like, what the hell are you doing? It doesn't make sense what you're doing. But I understand this story, I understand the story of shame, and I understand how that can damage people. And I'm like, you know what that did? It helped me, seeing this story helps me understand people better. What's your point, Chad? I'm finding the joy in the Bible. There are really weird stories in here. There's some really strange bits. I don't know what the heck you meant to do with them. There are some very, very strange, obscure things in the Bible that it's very difficult to find out how it's significant to me in the 21st century. But this is what I know. Almost every portion of Scripture will teach you something about Jesus. God, look for Jesus. Almost everything will teach you something about others. And a lot of things in the Bible will teach you about you, will speak to your identity and who you are. And, of course, the New Testament's one of the best places to do that. To really learn about yourself, the Bible will help you to do that. So as you're reading the Bible, no matter which part you're reading, you know what it says, you're doing your very best to work out what it means, but then you're saying, well, how on earth does that matter to me today, for goodness sake? Here's a simple tool. Find joy. Look for joy. Find joy in biblical revelation. Look for Jesus. Ask what it teaches you about others and say, Lord, what about me? What do you have to say? What does it say about you? What does it say about you? And as I said before, one of the ways you find out what the Bible says about you is put yourself in the story. Who do you identify with? How can you identify to bring that story alive to you? And do that. Find the joy. How much time have we got? No, no, no. I, I, just, I just got serious and I realised we might need to shake it, shake it up a bit. What? I want, this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to give you a bonus step today and I want to talk about step four. I know. I just thought about what to do. Thank you very much. What is it? Say. Say. What does it mean? What does it matter? Four steps. How do I communicate to others? I'm going to talk in our next half session, and we'll have a shake because I did get a bit serious then, about turning hermeneutics into homiletics because this is about discipling. And you read yesterday in 2 Timothy chapter 2, what I've taught you, I want you to entrust to other people who would teach others. What I'm sharing with you today, I want you to learn something, and I hope you do, But that's not all. I want you to be able to share these things with other people. And that's why, as painful as it might seem to some of you, I do this whole alliteration thing, because I'm hoping that not only will you remember some of them, but you will be able to remember them to tell other people. So I want to move to a fourth step, which is turning my hermeneutics, what I've done in private, into homiletics, telling other people. How do I lead a small group? How do I lead a Bible study? How do I speak if I'm invited to preach at church? And I want to do that. So I'm going to spend 20 minutes doing that, and then... And, and then we'll go. Should we? But before we move on to that, I'll sit down. Is there any Q and r or response for what we what we did then? Okay. So the question is: At what point do you leave bad leadership? Yeah, it was pretty much just on what you were saying before. I can't remember the exact thing on Ah, uh, yeah, David, Jonathan, and and so yeah. So, small group discussion later. That'll be great for that. (laughs) Like everything, there's general principles and then there's specific circumstances. And like a lot of things, seek God's will. You seek God's because you'll be counselling people through that situation at some point. Seek God's will through the Spirit. You ask God. You know. Sorry for the basic answer. Um, you, there'll be a peace and a joy. There'll be a grief. There's always a grief, but there'll be um, Isaiah 55, 11, 12. They'll be led forth in peace and go out with joy. There'll be some sort of peace on that decision, and then S inquire, ask people, ask other people, get get wisdom is found in the advice of many, uh, and then see if God speaks to you through the through the scriptures. But other, it, it's one of those questions. It's a bit like anything. It's like because what's bad leadership? What is it really? How you know? It, it's, there's no real one size fits all type of thing. I did get a bit somber then. Should I do the whole, if you're struggling, do this? I feel like it should have a disclaimer. I wasn't actually meant to get that serious. But, but the Bible talks about real life. Thank you very much. The Bible, and this is one of the things, as you, especially as you read it chronologically, it's like, no wonder James up that end can say, oh, Elijah was a man just like us. Yeah, they're actually, people in the Bible are just like us. Okay, Yes, they're in a very different cultural background. Yes, they speak a different language. Yes, they worshipped in the temple. Yes, they're very different but they're also just like us, people are still people and any stuff that you go through or you help other people go through, they're not the first and they won't be the last, it's happened before, it will happen again and let's learn the wisdom from the past for goodness sake so we can negotiate them.
1: Did you want to say something? (laughs) Just on the session before, Chad, on forgiveness, Um, when you were talking about forgiving 70 times 7, um, obviously it's not that literal how many times but I'd just like you to say a little bit more about because that's been a really profound verse for me to understand that that was like a, a brother who kept on needing to repent. So it's sort of a, similar to what you're talking about here. It's like, well, if there's patterns from other people and they just keep pounding you and um, A, that, that 70 times 7 to me is talked about it's an attitude of forgiveness for me to be freed and because God has forgiven me, I, I do that, but it's also for my good. But also it talks about reconciliation, being reconciled too, but that there are times, yeah, to walk away. Like you're saying, Jonathan might have done better to walk away from that continual abuse and then hurting of David through that complex topic, but a good one. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm guessing that you're saying, yeah, we still forgive and we're still thankful to God for forgiving us because it's good for us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. But we don't just, you know, forgive and reconcile, and forgive and reconcile, and forgive and reconcile, and let people just pound us.
0: And that would make, on the th- when you're intentional about your Bible reading, and one of the ways to be intentional is a topical study. Forgiveness is a great one, and be aware that, yeah, and that, and be aware as you do a study on forgiveness that there's vertical, Chad's term, whatever, vertical and horizontal. So the scriptures I quoted over here about forgiveness. We're both about God forgiving us and Jesus saying, you've got to forgive others so that God will forgive you. It's God forgiving you that matters here, which is what Paul said, God has forgiven you. So I was talking about vertical, but horizontal forgiveness. There's heaps in the Bible to to read about that. And guess what? Paul over here says, in that same verse where he says, God has forgiven you, the first half of that verse, because there's no verses in the Bible, the first half of that sentence is this, forgive others just as Christ has forgiven you. And how did Christ forgive us? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Christ forgive you before you were ever born. So how do we forgive others? We forgive them before they apologize, before they even know they've done wrong. And that's that perpetual forgiveness. I'm not holding on. And forgiveness is very misunderstood, but I, I felt like God gave me a phrase, take it or leave it. If it's good, then it was the Spirit. If it's not good, it was just me. Forgiveness says, "You hurt me, but you don't owe me." Because forgiveness is about cancelling a debt. There's, you don't, but it's, you hurt me. You still hurt me, but you don't owe me anything. That's what forgiveness. You hurt me, but you don't owe me. And yet, in um, Timothy or Jose, I can't remember which it was now, when um, Paul was talking. I think it was Timothy, talking to Timothy. Um, about people within the church who were uh, detrimental, to give them two warnings and then tick them off. Nothing more to do with them. That, that's, that's pretty harsh. And guess what he does then? When Paul's over here and he's saying, or Jesus says, go to someone. If they don't repent, take someone else with you, Matthew 18. And when Jesus said, uh, Paul said, Jesus through Paul, said, um, anyway, um, when Paul said two or three warnings and have nothing more to do with them, both of these boys, Jesus, sorry, both of these guys say, because the Bible says, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, it will be established. So what do they do? They divide between the practice, the principle, and the purpose. Over here, Moses is making a court of law and saying, when a criminal comes, don't prosecute him unless there's two or three witnesses. Jesus and Paul employ the hermeneutic we talked about 20 minutes ago. They see that specific practice in a court of law, and they apply the principle behind that to relationships in the church. Not a court of law, okay? Not a civil court of law, but they apply it to relationships. And they say, don't make a major relational decision unless there's two or three witnesses. Give people two or three chances, two or three witnesses. And I'd often say that to people. uh, And that's what the corroborating content's all about. It's about taking that specific practice in Israel's judicial history and finding the wisdom behind it. I'd often say, and people who make significant decisions in life before you change jobs or before you marry someone, or before you take over, a, start a cafe or a business, or before you make a significant decision in life, take on a church, okay? Before you do that, make sure God is, give God opportunity to speak to you two or three times, okay? The bigger the decision, because no matter, whenever you make a decision, whenever you step out, you are going to be challenged. and Sometimes it can happen straight away. You are going to be challenged. Get married, find out. You're going to be challenged. So you need to know, you're going to plant a church. Okay, so we planted a church. You're going to be challenged. And you need to know in those hard times, I know God spoke. There's two or three things he spoke to me. He said that, he said that, he said, boom, I'm going to stand on that conviction. So I would suggest don't make major decisions in life. Just because you felt a peace in the Holy Spirit or, or had a dream, it might not be enough for a significant decision bounce it off other people, draw on the saints, draw on the scripture, get two or three confirmations before a major decision.
1: I'm just wondering if Rob was picking up that thing of, if it's saying forgive, release, before they even know, and then does it seem like a contradiction to then say, oh, two chances and you're out?
0: Is that what you're asking? Okay. Um, See, so we're not really here. Um, 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 um. So, okay, there you go. So, how can Paul write over here, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is the most highest thing, blah, 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 blah. Love always trusts. And yet over here, Solomon says, don't trust a fool. You're an idiot if you trust a fool. Okay, so the Bible says don't trust, and then it says trust. So, either we reconcile that by saying, Paul had a higher revelation than Solomon, God moved on you know or we well this is Chad's conclusion it'll take too long to explain the options I'll just give you my thing (laughs) let's just get to it because I want to get I want to finish off with this up love always trusts Um, it's a difference between uh, to trust to believe the best uh, or entrust yourself uh, to entrust yourself to make your to make yourself vulnerable to people If someone keeps robbing and stealing and has proven themselves to be abusive or whatever over and over, I trust them. I trust that they are who they are. I trust that they're a thief. Therefore, I don't trust them with my property because I trust that they are an abusive person. Now, I'll believe the best, but I'm not going to be a fool and put myself in a vulnerable... I'm going to take Solomon's advice and not entrust myself To a thief. I'm not going to trust myself. So when you take advice from people, so I'm not going to, what? Because I've only got two cheeks. So that's Chad's, this is Chad's, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. What did he mean? Well, some people in their exegesis of that passage go, you keep allowing yourself to be vulnerable. Chad reads that, and his exegesis is, you allow yourself to be vulnerable, but you've only got two cheeks, remember. Turn the other cheek. The other one that hasn't been hit yet. You allow yourself to be vulnerable again. And then what do you do after that? Well, other passages speak about that. Jesus didn't in that instance. Now, other people I respect don't see that at all. We did an Alan Meyer course years ago. And his his thing was mercy. Just keep turning those cheeks and keep getting hit. And that's the Jesus way. So we can disagree about that. Because some things are clear and some things are, are, are cloudy. Now, remember, forgiveness isn't our subject for the day. I just brought it up as an example.
1: I love that in the same passage where, you know, I mean, I grew up with, you know, love is kind, love is, you know, trusts and la 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 la, patient and beat myself up. over I, mean, I should be more patient, more loving, more kind. But in more recent years, God's, it's popped out, you know, love delights in the truth and love always protects. And it's part of the same passage. And I think that balances the very thing you're talking about.
0: Okay. guy out of the church Uh he's doing a pastoral letter to maintaining a healthy church and the person is causing problems to other people in the church so i don't think he's talking about personal forgiveness i think he's talking about healthy church communities and so i think if you read the audience you would say there's a different practice here for an audience of a church than for say you when you slap me or you say mean things to me and then there's a guy who's sleeping with his dad's wife, whatever it is, and Paul's like kicking him out, but then the next letter is like, okay, welcome him back in. Yeah. So he does practice forgiveness, but he's really strong, but he's not talking about personal relationships, he's talking about the health of the church. I think that's... Okay. Is that right? Is that right? That's all. Forgiveness... So, the week, so for me to finish the conversation, because <laughs> I've got the mic... Um, You can forgive someone, I believe, forgiveness can be instant. Because forgiveness, the way it's described in the New Testament, the way the Bible describes it, is it's the cancelling of a debt. So it says, you hurt me, I'll say that again, you hurt me, but you don't owe me. But you know what? I'm still hurting. So I forgive you, you don't owe me, but I may not respect you. That may take a while. It may take a while for me to be healed. It may take a while for me to... Um, respect you again or to entrust myself to you again and so when a and this if this hasn't happened to you yet it will there'll be someone you respect or you look up to it'll be a worship team leader or a pastor or a bible teacher or a prophetic person an author or whatever and they're going to run off on and they're going to commit adultery or they're going to turn or they're going to do whatever okay it happens and they're going to be caught out or, or come out as, as having significant sin, uh, sin issues in their life that will hurt you especially if it's close to you You can forgive that person instantly. Any time a Christian pastor comes out having committed affairs, and and affairs is is two nights a word, so committing adultery or whatever, forgiveness can be instant. But entrusting yourself to that person, respecting that person again, can take time. And so that's why it's possible for those people to return to a public place, and I'll get to this in the next half session, to return to a public place and speak again. But that may take time for people to actually respect that, that person if people don't respect you, they won't hear you, they won't listen to you. But anyway, have a stretch. We're going to move from hermeneutics to homiletics, and we're going to talk about how to communicate what we've learned in private to, in the public space. And we're going to be done by 12:40. Mm, well, for those who've just tuned in listening, this is we're basically capping it off with a bonus fourth step. I've said all this time that there are three steps to rightly handling the word of God, asking ourselves what does it say, What does it mean? What does it matter? This whole process is called hermeneutics, interpreting the scripture. The second step has a technical term known as exegesis. But what I want to do now is introduce step number four, which is how do we take what I've learned as a student and share it with other people? So how does the pupil become a preacher? How does the student become a, a teacher? Second Timothy, teach others who can teach others. And if this is a discipleship, Uh, week then it's not just about being better followers it's about helping others be better followers too okay so the technical term here is we're taking hermeneutics to homiletics and homiletics basically means speak uh, speak speaking communicating uh it's all there in the greek whatever um we really only use it when talking about funerals don't we you only see the word homily homily have you you ever done a funeral and you see them in homily Oh, okay, when you're, when you're a preacher, you, you see this word. You do a funeral, and the, the thing that the preacher does is called a homily. Okay, it's a fancy word. I thought, uh, yeah, anyway, so it's homiletics. So, um, it's hermeneutics, is what I do as a, as, a te- as a student. Homiletics is how do I preach, how do I communicate, all right? And guess what? It's here in Timothy, so let's have a look. First Timothy chapter uh, chapter 4. And um, let's read uh, 12 and 13. Here, what have you, which uh, version have you got there? Oh, yeah, okay. 12 and
1: 13? Yeah, 4, 12,
0: 13. Don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love,
1: your faith, and your purity. Until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them.
0: I need a better translation to help me make my point. Um, what have you got? I did, yeah, yeah, I didn't know what it said. huh? I'll give that a go. That's more formal. First Timothy 4, 12 and 13. Just read verse 13. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhort, exhortation and teaching. Still not what I want. Someone give me the word that I want. Because that's how you preach well. You look for a translation that suits your points, you see. That's terrible. What have you got? Uh, ESV, uh, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. No, no, I don't want any of these. What have you got? Nah, what have you got? Okay, finally.
1: Uh, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching.
0: okay jokes aside (laughs) jokes aside three things we've just spoken about three steps to healthy hermeneutics okay this is how to study the scripture what does it say what does it mean what does it matter when it comes to a healthy homiletic okay how to share it with others first thing read it devote yourself to the public reading of scripture all your bibles said that okay read it out loud one of them said read it out loud secondly preach it uh, no i'm not going to do it in that order teach it teach it all of your translations says said teach it okay and the third thing is preach it that is terrible look at that only a chemist could read that Read it, teach it, preach it. Some of your virgins virgins. God. Some of your virgins <laughs> this is where you a friend of mine actually has dyslexia. And he um, he said the he talked about the streets of heaven being laid with hemorrhoids. And he meant emeralds, but he said hemorrhoids. <laughs> anyway these are preachers' jokes there. Anyway preach it no. Read it, teach it, preach it. Paul says in that verse, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture to teaching it and to preaching it. This is ingredients. It's not a prescription. It's not a pattern. It's not a do this or you're not a good preacher. Okay. But here are three key ingredients to what I'd call a healthy homiletic. And wouldn't you know it? Those three points correspond exactly to what we've just done in private in the private place we have read the bible what does it say in the private place we have discovered its meaning we've researched what does it mean and in the private place we've now looked at applying it to our life this is how this truth has significance to me today well as we come to the public platform you're leading a small group you're sharing a word somewhere, you get to preach on a Sunday, big responsibility, you've got more time to do it. Three things to a healthy homiletic. Read the Bible to your people. Teach them something of what it means. Give them some type of teaching that helps them understand the meaning and then preach it. Tell them this is true and this is why it matters to you. What we've just done in private, we now do in public. I believe, you read... Revelations chapter one. Revelations, chat—it's singular. Revelation, chapter one, and it says, "Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, for the time is near." I think it's I think it's verse three. In the first century, the New Testament was written. Almost all reading was done in public. Okay, it was community reading because no one had their own books, and they certainly didn't have you know, uh, iPad or whatever, to have their own e-books. No one read privately. It was done in public places, synagogues or philosophy classes or universities and whatever. Okay. So when Revelation has this letter, Revelation has this letter and it says, blessed is the one who reads it. The whole context there is very simple. One person read it while those plural listen to it. I believe that a healthy homiletic will always include reading the bible just read the darn thing read it aloud even if you don't offer explanation now some of you as I found out yesterday come from traditions where you know this better than I do because remember I'm from a Pentecostal tradition and we're the worst at this so you're like duh But some of you come from traditions where your church service is structured around this. You actually have a part in the service where there's a scripture reading. And even if it's irrelevant, sorry, it's always relevant, even if it's got nothing to do with the songs that you've sung, nothing to do with what the preacher's about to share, you have a reading Bible bit because the word's important, don't you know, Chad? So we read the thing. Some churches have a tradition. I've got a friend of mine who's a duchy. And when he reads the Bible out loud, he makes people stand up. Don't you dare sit down when the Bible's being read. Stand up. They stand up and he reads the scripture. That's the tradition he's from. I believe that no matter what the audience is, there should always be some reading of the scripture. What we've done in private, we now do in public. Because here's a really important thing, and this is what a lot of preachers really need to understand. What we model in public is what people would do in private. Sheepy see, sheepy do. And where people, churches, congregations, and Christian communities are biblically illiterate, I place a fair amount of that responsibility on the people that stand here in the pulpit. How we as leaders handle the scripture publicly, whether we are explicit about it or not, will inadvertently teach people what they are to do at home. And so if we do, thank you to our Pentecostal preachers. We do the thing where we tell a joke to start with, tell a story, and anecdote about this movie I watched this week, open up and read half of that proverb, and then come back and tell a few stories, and then make my point and make my three points, and then I come back and I read half of verse to finish with. I'm teaching my people that's how they should handle the Bible too. You just read a bit here, and then you read a bit there, and you find a bit that makes a point of what you already believe. Okay, so I'm teaching my people to do that. No, I need to get up and just read the text. Read the Bible, even if you don't explain it. Revelation doesn't say blessed is the one who understands the word of this book. It says blessed is the one who reads it. There's, just, there's a special blessing in just reading the thing aloud. Okay, and so I did a Philippians series last year. I didn't do it, I got my preaching team to do it. So we divided it up into six or seven weeks. I started in the book of Acts, because how do you get context for Philippians? You look at when Paul went to Philippi. Boom. So it started there. People uh, preached different portions. I divided it up and said, you preach on that bit, you preach on that bit. But what I said to them is this, I've got one rule. I'm not asking you to do a line-by-line teaching, but what I do want you to do is, in that portion, at least read the whole thing. Even if your preach is only about the one theme that sticks out to you or the thing that you felt Holy Spirit highlight to you or that particular verse, that's really where the main thrust of my message, my homily, is coming from today. I want you to at least read the whole thing. So we did that. Even if you don't explain it all, read it all. Then at the end of that series, i done something that I've never done before. It took me 18 years to do it. I did my final session, seventh week of Philippians, and I stood up and I read the whole book 15 or 20 minutes of my sermon time was just reading Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through to the end I just read it I made some points after but I just read it because that's the way it was originally intended to be heard Paul as I said yesterday did not write a book so the Philippian church could flick through and only hear bits and pieces you read it to read it and that's what you guys did yesterday with Timothy sat down and just read the thing read it aloud And so what I've just done in the private place, finding out what the Bible says, I'm now modelling to my people. I am now reading the scripture aloud to them. And inadvertently I'm teaching them that they can do the same. And of course when you do that, and preachers get this all the time, people will come up and they say, you know, when you were preaching today, it really stood out to me, that blah, 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 and it had nothing to do with my message. You know, thanks a lot. (laughs) But that's because God spoke okay and God's message resonated and so that day I had people come to me and say now I understand Christ and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength great verse but it has a context of a whole book and we heard it in its context She heard it in its context it made far better sense how do you approach the pulpit or approach your small group read it and even if you your study is on four or five verses or a, a certain passage why not do the chapter before the chapter after, read a portion. Read it. The second thing you do, it doesn't have to be in this order, I'm just saying three ingredients, is teach it. In the private place, I have studied out what it means. I've done the ABCs of exegesis. Who's the author? the Corroborate my content. I'm really digging in to discover the meaning as best as I can. In the public place, that's what I'm doing. I'm teaching. I'm explaining this. I'm explaining what I've just read, or at least some of what I've just read. I'm explaining it. I see a difference between teaching and preaching, and this is how I uh, describe it. Teaching is explaining truth. I'm explaining something. Preaching is proclaiming. This is how this is true. This is why it works. This is what it means. I'm explaining this to you. When I preach, I've changed gears and I'm now saying, this is true. Not, this is how it's true. I'm just saying, this is true. This is how it matters to you and this is what you should do about it. But When I'm teaching, I'm explaining something. It's almost like I'm inviting my listeners to come into my study to learn some of the things that I've learned when I've researched and I'm asking them, in a sense, to step back with me because the meaning has always been the same. So I'm taking them back into something of the historical context. I'm taking them back. I'm reminding them of who the author and audience is. I may be giving them some picture of the big background. Look, what we just read fits in a part of Israel's history when this was happening. Let me just explain that to you. Okay, let me explain. This is, this is what I mean. After Moses, God's people were in the promised land and David established Jerusalem and then the kingdom divided. And so when we're reading Hosea, that's what we're reading. He's talking to the northern kingdom in about 700 B.C. Okay? Done. That's easy. I've just explained, taught something that I've learnt in the private place. I'm teaching. Then, when I preach, third ingredient, I switch gears and I'm not now looking back historically at what the Bible says and means. I'm now looking forward and in the present. And I'm saying, listen, people, this is true. It's true for us today and in our situation that we're facing, this is how we apply it. And you better make sure you do this because wisdom for your children's children's future, this is the kind of society that we, we want to see, blah, 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 blah. blah. So I'm pointing people in the present and pushing them into the future, which is why your Bible say exhortation, because I'm cu- encouraging people, I'm coming alongside people. I think that's what the Greek means, you can blue Bible it when you get home. It's coming alongside people and encouraging them where they're at. I'm ministering to their hands, telling them how to apply it. I'm ministering to their heart, you know, the emotion of that word and the spirit of God making it alive to me. Whereas over here, I'm really changing, I'm getting their mind to think well, okay? You read it, teach it, and preach it. In a lot of preaching, sorry, a poor homiletic will omit one or two or three of that, no, can't omit three, surely. Uh, a really bad one will omit all three. Um, but we'll omit those steps. It just won't read the Bible. And what are you t- teaching people? Or are you teaching people like a lot of Pentecostal preachers are doing? That you read the Bible like this and read half a verse here and half a proverb there, okay? If you just educate people on what the scripture means, then you're really not much better than just a history teacher. Because you're taking people back in time, you're explaining something, you're impressing someone with your intellect. And some churches focus on this 99%. This is what they're doing. It's a history lesson. I love it because I love the intellectual stimulation of the thing. But God's word is living and active today. And so it needs this. This is how it matters to us. This is what we should do about it. There is some response required. And as a someone who's taking the pulpit, I have a responsibility to be highlighting this to people like Nehemiah did. Okay? Because sometimes we can't trust people to respond. We can't trust people. Sometimes, people need guidance in how to respond properly. That's what Nehemiah saw. The people wept when they understood the meaning. And he didn't leave them weeping. He said, no, you've missed the point. This is how you should respond. So that's why when you read Paul's letters, he writes to them. He explains the doctrine of theology, of grace and predestination and Romans, unpacking all the teaching and the teaching in the Old Testament, blah, blah, blah. blah. And then... He changes gear and he says, therefore, you live like this, people. Yes? It's quite in the Old Testament where he's writing, he's explaining the historical background, the theology of it, and then he outworks the doctrine. This is how it matters. That's our homiletic. And I believe that these three ingredients can mix and match, like some dishes, you can have more of others at different times or whatever, but these three ingredients should be part of our homiletic all the time. And even if you're at a funeral, really easy and someone asks you to read psalm 23 why not at a funeral you don't just have to read it without going into too much depth even knowing that the crowd are not christians they haven't been invited to church you know that the context is not conducive for an hour-long bible study you can still do some kind of teaching in three sentences You can share something of the ABCs of exegesis. Hi everyone, I'm going to read Psalm 23 today for Dear Mary. It's her favourite psalm. Um, Before I read, just a bit of a heads up, some of you may have heard of David who killed Goliath. He became a king and as a shepherd boy, he learnt what it was to shepherd sheep. That's who he was when when he killed Goliath as a young boy. And later in life, he writes this poem or this song, It's a Hebrew poem, it's 3,000 years old and he realises that God is like a shepherd to him. Just like he was a shepherd to real sheep, so God is a shepherd to him. And this is what he said. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay. So what have I just done? In 30 seconds, I've given the people some type of teaching. They have now some type of grid... As to where this fits in history, 3,000 years old, it's a poem. Oh, the Bible has poetry, does it? Yeah. There's an author of this poem. It's not just a mysterious thing that just dropped out of the sky. No, there's a guy called David, the one that killed Goliath. You've probably heard of him. And he had a shepherd. So it comes out. So you've given something. You've taught something. And then maybe after that, a simple application or whatever of this same God. There's one thing I know. The same God that David knew 3,000 years ago is the same God is unchanged today. Mary knew him as her shepherd, the one that would lead her and guide her through her life. And I hope that whoever you are today, you can find his leading and guiding in your life too because he really, really is a good, a good shepherd, Yeah, something like that. Okay, so <laughs> you've read it, you've given some teaching and then you've given some type of proclamation, encouragement and preaching of where people are at and hopefully propelling them into a good future, okay? Those of us who have it, and you might think, well, and, and not you from what I've already worked out, but someone might say, well, look, I'm not much of a teacher. I'm not a teaching type, Chad, so I don't do that bit. Well, listen, one of the things we just read in Timothy yesterday, is I think it might even be in that same chapter, is he says, it might be in the next verse, have a look. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Is that the next verse? okay don't worry it's in there somewhere trust me discharge he says do the work of an evangelist do you know there's no indication anywhere in the bible that timothy was an evangelist he's not called an evangelist but paul said do the work of an evangelist so even if someone says i'm not a teacher it's not my thing okay i'm a preacher i'm an evangelist i'm a prophet whatever you can still do the work of a teacher You can still do the work of one. You can still do some type of teaching, even if it's not your thing. Just like a pastor type or a teacher type can still prophesy, can still hear God's voice, even if it's not their main thing. You know, in a year, um, Caleb might be able to answer this, but there might be half a dozen, maybe more times a year where I'd give like a prophetic word or a specific word for people or something. It doesn't happen every single week because I'm not a prophet. I'm more of a teacher type, but I will do that ministry as I feel led by the Spirit, because I know it's part of the toolbox that someone needs for that day. Okay. I think that's that. So, as you, if you're ever asked to lead a group, give a talk, maybe preach on a Sunday, consider those three ingredients. Don't be afraid of reading the Bible. Do it. Even if you don't explain it, let things hang, it's fine. You don't need to know it all and people don't need to know it all. Just read the thing. Give some explanation and then bring practical prophetic, pertinent, right now, timeless truth. Show how it's timely. And that's one of my prayers every time I I preach. Lord, today I want to explain truth that's timeless, that people leave knowing that's true and it's always true. It's good eight days a week, you know, that's timeless. But Lord, I also want there to be something on my word today that's timely, that's like, actually, that was for now. And that's why every now and again I'll, I'll go down a rabbit trail and I'm like, I didn't really prepare to say that. I'm gonna I'm going say that that was the Holy Spirit leading me. There was something timely about that word that needed to be said today, um, and that's sort of the pre, more of the preaching angle. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Any any Q and R about that? I said 12:40, and it's 12:45. Any Q and R on that? Hermeneutics to homiletics? No. Okay, cool. Yay. Dad, you are so good and we really are really grateful for your word. A-E-I-A-U, appreciation. Today, we just say we really appreciate your scripture. We thank you that ultimately the purpose of this book is not to titillate our intellect, is not to educate us on historical happenings for the sake of knowledge, because we know knowledge itself puffs up. It is love that is our ultimate goal. And we thank you that this book shows us how to have a love relationship with you. We thank you that it reveals a redemptive plan. And we thank you that we are at the end of the story. (laughs) We are on this side of the cross of Calvary. And we're really grateful for that. When we look through covenant history, I'm grateful that I am in this part of the story, post the Jesus and the work of the cross. I'm really grateful for that. So thank you so much. Lord, I pray that as I get into your word you'd reveal more of yourself to me. And I pray for these everyone here on the sound of my voice, Lord, that they would know you more. We're not here to know the Bible more. We're here to know you more. And so I pray that you would release the spirit of wisdom and revelation as we approach the Scriptures, that we would know you better. And Lord, please help us also to love other people better, loving God and loving people. We open ourselves up to whatever lesson it is you want to teach us to help us love our neighbour to help us love others as you have loved us. And so we give ourselves to these two most important things. We bless you for your word. We say that we will not take it for granted. And I pray right now, Lord, for a release of passion and a sense of purpose as we approach your written word, a hunger for your scripture, and uh, an increased knowledge on how to handle it well. So I pray that these lessons would be remembered, heard, and heeded uh, in yeah, these beautiful people here today. I bless them in Jesus' name. Yeah, amen. Awesome. Thank you. It's been a good couple of days. Thank you.